Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. I've actually personally worked at the temple for the last 10 years or so, so I can really attest and vouch for the quality of the work that they do. They predominantly work with the plant medicine ayahuasca, working in the lineage of the Shipibo people, and they offer 12-day retreats, and in those 12 days, there's six ceremonies. Um, they work with four curanderos or Shipibo doctors, healers, uh, two to three facilitators, which is kind of like the bridge between the guests who come down and the Shipibo who they're working with. Um, they're working with a pre-ceremony yoga teacher, vegetalistas or herbalists, bone doctors, massage people. Uh, there's a, <clears throat> a really good uh, screening process for before people come, a lot of material, a lot of preparation, a really amazing integration team. So all in all, it's just a really amazing experience. So if anyone has interest in, in, in working with ayahuasca or these, these sacred plant medicines, uh, the Temple of the Way of Light is a really amazing place to go and to be able to really deeply experience those. Um, <clears throat> they've been closed, unfortunately, since the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020, uh, but they're scheduled to reopen in August of this year. So if you'd like more information about the temple and the work they do, you can check out their website at templeofthewayoflight.org, and there'll be a link also in the show notes. And myself and my friend and colleague, Marav Artsy, who I interviewed in episode 28, I believe, of this uh, podcast, we are continuing to run dietas, uh, diets, which is a traditional process that people really go into, into a process of isolation, of fasting, and ingesting some of these different medicinal plants in a journey of, of healing, of learning, and, uh, and really being able to be taught by these plants. So that's a really amazing opportunity to go deeper into this work. We're just finishing a, a dieta and we'll be running um, one in upstate New York in the month of July. We'll be back here in the Sacred Valley of Peru in September working. And I believe we're going to try and be in Egypt in the Sinai Desert in October. Um, so if you'd like more information about the work that we do, about dieting with us, you can check out my website at nicotianarustica.org and Marav's site at tobaccodiets.com. Um, my guest for today is my friend Scott Hussa. Uh, I met Scott working in the Peruvian Amazon, Amazon jungle at the Plant Medicine Center of the Temple of the Way of Light. Um, it's probably been, I don't know, seven or eight years now that we met. And I've, I've known Scott for a long time. He uh, facilitates ceremonies there at the temple. And uh, he has a really beautiful story. We, we talked about a lot of topics. He shared some of his story, and it was uh, quite beautiful, quite intimate. And, um, and really just his journey that's led him down this path, what he's learned. Um, we talked a lot about facilitation and plant medicine. And I think it was a really fascinating conversation. And I think and hope you guys will all really enjoy and get something out of it. So as always, if you're able to help to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me to continue to bring on guests like Scott and to continue to make these podcasts. 
Patreon is a really good way. It's a subscription service, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Um, and with that, you get uh, added benefits, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. So that's a, a really big help for this podcast, a really big help for me. Uh, to everyone who has done that, thank you very much. To all the patrons, um, I, I really appreciate all the help and the support. And if you're able to do that, I would greatly appreciate it. There's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. And if you're not able to do that, simply subscribing to the show, going on the YouTube channel, subscribing, turning on the notification bell, liking the video. That's a really big help with the algorithms. And then with the audio version, going on Apple Podcasts, subscribing to the show. And if you can, leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a really big help. So I think that's it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Scott. Running up from the maze. Running up from the well, cool, man. Well, it's, it's good to have you. Oh, thank you very um, much for having me. I, yeah, man. Yeah, I hope I can contribute something <laughs> worthwhile. For sure. For sure. But, yeah. Um, so probably by now, if, if people don't know, a, a lot of the guests I've had on this podcast, uh, I'm at working at the, the Amazonian Plant Healing Center, the Temple of the Way of Light. Uh, that's how we originally met. So yeah. maybe just to start a, a bit about your background. Um, also, just as a side note, there was a, a guest of ours who requested we spoke. So I think he'll be really happy oh, okay. to hear this. <laughs> uh, Peter, do you remember him? Um, Peter Moffat? Yes. Is his name? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Definitely rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, maybe just a little bit about your background, like where you're from, your life's journey, what eventually led you down to the Amazon into this very kind of peculiar field that you, you found yourself in. Um, okay. Um, so I was adopted when I was three years old from, uh, Seoul, South Korea, or actually just outside of Seoul in Incheon. And, uh, you know, uh, Grew up uh, for about three to four years in Minnesota, um, and my parents divorced. Um, my brother, who's not adopted, um, along with my mom and I, uh, moved out to Oregon from Minnesota, and pretty much grew up there um, on the coast, uh, northern coast uh, in Seaside. And uh, yeah, that um, that was kind of early childhood. Um, you know, was in university and, you know, I, I think I was on that track of just kind of going through the motions. Um, I had a pretty strong sense that, you know, if I finished, um, you know, I'd probably end up going right into a job. Um, I wanted to travel a bit, so I ended up uh, leaving um, University of Oregon um, at the end of my junior year and went to Asia, um, just to kind of like get some traveling underneath my belt and, uh, was in Tokyo for about six months. And that was, um, 
that was an eye opener, uh, being really the first time traveling solo internationally. And, uh, you know, I studied Japanese in, um, university and, but it was not nearly enough to the point where I felt like I could navigate, um, Tokyo as it were. Um, I, I got around, but, um, yeah, it was just a very, uh, foreign experience and to kind of be in that environment. Um, you know, I had some Japanese friends that I had met in university and, you know, they were a big help, but a lot of it was just kind of, um, I want to say part soul searching, part, um, exploring, uh, the world. And after about six months, um, you know, I was looking for work as well. I wanted to get, see if I could get some international work, um, before I graduated as well. And, um, nothing really panned out there. So I was getting ready to go back, uh, to the States and I was on the phone with my mom and she said, well, you're so close to Korea. It would be a shame if you just didn't visit the country that you were born in. So, you know, I sat with that for a couple of days and it's like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll check it out. And it was, um, it was a really interesting experience because it was probably the first time in my life that I felt, um, synchronicity in just very magical ways. So as an example, uh, I had met, um, some Canadians, uh, when I was on, during a trip, uh, to Malaysia, uh, while I was in Japan, I took a trip to Singapore and Malaysia, um, met some Canadians there who were working in Seoul and, you know, kind of got to talking and they said if I ever got to Korea, um, that they had some Korean contacts that they could put me in touch with. So, uh, one thing led to another, um, I ended up meeting this contact, uh, through this Canadian, uh, woman that I had met in Malaysia at the airport. Uh, she picked me up, helped me get into a hotel, which turned into, um, unbeknownst to her, a love hotel, which was really funny, uh, cause I wanted to spend a week there and checking in. The guy just kind of looked at me like, what are you, what? <laughs> you know, I had all my luggage, you know? Um, so I'm, I'm sure he had some pretty interesting thoughts going through his head. You're not paying by hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, after checking in and kind of having a very interesting check-in experience in um, what was a love hotel, um, she took me to uh, one of her watering holes, and uh, it was this Western rock and roll bar. And I ended up meeting uh, three Canadian English teachers, and, uh, you know, she had, they were acquaintances of hers. And one of the guys was like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm at that in my contract. I'm leaving next, you know, in the next month, do you want my job? And I, you know, just, I was taken aback. I was like, literally, I've just gotten off the airplane. Like, no, I don't want to teach English. Like, uh, you know, thank you. Uh, very kind of you. And he's like, uh, well, you know, uh, say he, who was, uh, my Korean contact, uh, she has my number. So, you know, if you change your mind, like just have her get in touch with me. And so, you know, I kind of put that on the back burner, um, really didn't think that much of it. And about a week later, he contacted her and asked if I'd just 
come in to check out the school. And so I was like, okay, um, nothing else to do. And um, went in and met with the owner. uh, And yeah, basically after a 15-minute interview, um, she asked if I could start the following week. Um, At this point in time, I was having such a good time, um, kind of, yeah, just being in in Korea. Uh, It's like, okay, I can do this for a year. And uh, yeah, one year ended up turning into about 11 years. Um, and in that time, uh, you know, did English, uh, taught English for the first three to four years. Um, I I did a lot of privates after the first year. Um, I kind of became an independent contractor and, um, yeah, uh, picked up some really weird side gigs. Um, in that process, I was, um, a part-time radio host for the English business section. Um, I don't know how that happened, but um, uh, it was with uh, EBS, uh, the Education Broadcast Service, which is like PBS in the U.S. And um, was doing that for about a year. Uh, That led into the first actual job that I had, which was working for an online education company, putting content together. And... um, yeah, I was there for about a year and a half. And then um, that led into uh, joining a startup, which was kind of a more business-focused... Um, the, it was English lessons, but it was really focused on like Western management systems and um, how North Americans predominantly, uh, you know, engage in business, you know, more of how the language is used... Um, how to use the language, um, within a business setting. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, um, became a partner in that. Um, and after about five and a half years of working there, um, ended up leaving and got headhunted by one of actually the clients that we had at the time, which was, um, Samsung Tesco and, uh, was brought on to work at their head office uh, to do one-on-one coaching with uh, their executive leader leadership team, uh, so directors and senior uh, vice presidents, <clears throat> which was really fascinating because the way I was introduced into the role was um, <clears throat> Tesco had their own management blocks that they wanted the Korean managers and directors to really you know take on. And, um, so I'd have one-on-ones, um, with, uh, VPs and directors, you know, um, every week. And after the first month, the, the HR director came in, who was Korean. He's like, Hey, you know, I uh, heard you're doing good. Um, is there anything that you need? And I, you know, jokingly said to him, um, you can give me a couch because we're really not going over any of these, you know, the training blocks that Tesco's, um, international wants us to go over with the the leadership, um, it's kind of more like a therapy session, um, which was really fascinating. And, uh, it was like, Oh, okay. And like, you know, kind of blew it off, uh, which I was, yeah, kind of, that was interesting to, uh, see how much of a disconnect there was between like what my understanding of the role was, uh, being kind of brought in as a consultant and, 
uh, the actuality of that. So that was kind of the first, I'd, I'd say, foray into what eventually led me into, um, you know, facilitating um, specifically with plant medicine, but um, basically spending a lot of time just listening to, uh, you know, these um, mid to senior level, uh, you know, vice presidents and managers uh, unloading emotionally about all of the stress that they were and challenges that they were facing, whether that was in family, work, um, in you know, their relationships, their, their marriage. Um, so it was really fascinating. And, um, yeah, that, uh, in a nutshell was kind of, um, my time in Korea. And I was getting to this point where I, I really wasn't enjoying the work. It was that, um, that kind of cliche, love the paycheck, didn't love the job. And, you know, that's pretty shallow at the end of the day. Like it's not super fulfilling. And, you know, there was this other component of after being in Korea, um, at around, you know, the 10 to 11 year mark, I just had this sense, like I need to make a decision. Either I'm going to permanently live here and, you know, integrate completely into Korean culture and everything that that entailed, um, from a cultural aspect which I had my own um, resistance, um, you know, to. Uh, there's, you know, seniority, age is very important there. Um, face, how you present yourself, um, you know, is, is very important. And, um, yeah, I, I just had a lot of per- internal conflicts. And it was around this time that I believe it was on one of Rogan's early podcasts, you know, he was talking about... Um, working with DMT or, and, uh, he had a friend who had, you know, drank ayahuasca and it was at that time when I was like, okay, like this is actually interesting. You know, um, there were some aspects of just my own identity that, you know, I'd been dancing around, uh, I'd say probably since high school, but never really went deep into, um, around being adopted, being raised in a, uh, yeah, um, predominantly, you know, upper white middle-class family, um, being the only person of color, um, in the family and just, yeah, what, what is my place? And, um, you know, living in Cree definitely helped, but there were still some nagging questions that were, that were there, um, that, you know, I was kind of getting to that point where I was ready to explore it, you know, um, with, with purpose. So, um, you know, made the decision to go back to the States and kind of, um, reset, you know, and figure out what I wanted to do, um, with the rest of my life. Um, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up kind of thing. So, um, it was after about three years of being back in the States and kind of, um, you know, just, reintegrating back into Western culture. Um, it was a really beautiful experience after living overseas for, you know, 11 years. I did this road trip with my stepfather, uh, from Oregon down to, uh, my parents had, uh, basically moved back to Texas or moved to Texas. And, uh, we did this road trip and it was 
this really beautiful experience of rediscovering and reappreciating, you know, the different um, parts of the U.S. You know, going down uh, the Pacific Coast Highway and just really having a newfound appreciation of of the beauty, um, you know, that the West Coast has. Driving down um, the coastal highway and then cutting across into you know uh, Nevada and New Mexico and um, yeah, just seeing the diversity of the landscape and um, the beauty in nature, you know, there's, it's such a diverse country and landscape, you know, that, um, yeah, I don't think I, I traveled across this, um, the U S, you know, moving from, uh, Minnesota to Oregon, but as a child, like, you know, you just don't really appreciate it. It's always about like getting to the destination rather than rather, rather than appreciating the journey. And so this was, um, yeah, it was a really beautiful, um, reconnection back into the u.s um and just the amazing diversity that you know the country has and um you know started to um yeah just think of like okay what is it i want to do and you know after some thinking and just kind of i'd say maybe calling in uh, spirit or, uh, being more open to, um, where, what I should do next. Uh, I mean, Peru just kind of like clicked and, uh, did my research on, I think three different centers and, uh, temple, you know, felt like it was the right place to go. And that kind of, um, was the beginning of my whole, uh, journey with working with plant medicine and, I uh, went down for a the, what was called the deep immersion program. I, I believe they're still calling it that, but at the time it was um, 30 days, and now I think it's around 28 days or 26 days. So, it was 23, <clears throat> although I think okay. it's no more because okay. of the, the pandemic. Oh, and, right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I uh, went down, and uh, it, it was really fascinating. Um, you know, I... I'd, I'd done my research around working with plant medicine and, you know, had, you know, checked online as far as like various people's experiences working with the medicine. And you, it's interesting in retrospect to kind of, you know, I think both you and I, uh, when we're working with first time uh, drinkers, you know, it's always trying to manage and um, kind of temper the expectations. You know, you hear so much about, you know, I'd say the extremes of the experiences and there's actually quite a bit to be found in the details and in, in the nuances. Um, and sometimes it's not the super profound, you know, explosive type of ceremonies that you get the most out of that, um, really last over a period of time. And so, you know, trying to be very grounded in, you know, uh, what, my first, uh, ceremony was going to be like, and, um, yeah, I, it was really profound in the sense that, um, it, it opened up, um, into something that I wasn't fully expecting. <laughs> um, and at the same time was very familiar. And I remember the thing that I remember the remember the most from that first uh, ceremony was uh, I think 
just internally saying, wow, wow, like throughout, you know, for most of the ceremony. And, um, uh, we had uh, a total of eight ceremonies and I'd say the first real challenging ceremony I had came in my fourth ceremony. And, um, I was at a point where, you know, I, I was ready to kind of take the work deeper as it were. And so my intention for that ceremony was, um, you know, uh, show me, show me my life's purpose. And I had my own preconceived idea of what that should be (laughs) based on, you know, my past, um, life experiences. So I was anticipating to get something that was very familiar and, uh, what actually came through was something that really shook me to my core. Um, like it, I I was, um, yeah, I was just shaking. I was turning away from it, you know, in ceremony, uh, literally on my mat, just turning away from, uh, the center of the circle and like, nope, you have the wrong guy. Like this is, this is not, this is not me. This is not what I want. And, um, it just, it was relentless. And, uh, so, uh, that, um, you know, there, there's one, many, many, I'd say, uh, ayahuasca, um, kind of cliche maxims that come through and, you know, the one that, you know, the facilitators that, um, I had, uh, during that retreat, you know, one of the first things they said was like, be careful what you set your intentions for, you know, because you may get something back that you're maybe not wanting, but you know, it's, it's not a negative thing, but it can be jarring. And so <clears throat> that, uh, that definitely resonated with me. And it took, uh, I mean, in some respects, I'm still working with it, you know, um, coming to terms with, uh, what, what that calling or what that purpose is, um, for me. And so, um, you know, by the end of that retreat, I, I knew I wanted to continue working with medicine, um, that there was more as far as just my own personal process that I wanted to go into and to heal, um, and gain insight on. And, um, the temple had a work exchange, um, at the time and I wasn't ready to jump right into that. So I wanted to go back in, you know, in a great process, um, that month. And that took about, you know, six months to do. And, um, at the end of those six months, I came back to the temple, um, did the work exchange for three months, which was, um, basically, you know, uh, kitchen link or assisting in, you know, I did a bit of, uh, permaculture as well. Um, so it was really just, you know, one being able to be in that environment, being in that medicine space constantly. And, um, yeah, just seeing all of my own programming kind of, you know, surface over this three month period of time, you know, longer, um, but yeah, again, seeing more of the, the nuances that come through, um, in daily life, 
uh, not just in the medicine space. And at the end of that three months, um, I think I'd probably annoyed and badgered um, the the management uh, to the point where they they were open <laughs> to um, taking a closer look at me, and so they asked me to extend for another four months. And um, at that point, that's where I felt like they were really kind of like checking me out to see like one, you know, how do I interact with guests? How do I interact with the rest of the community? Um, you know, am I a waste of space? You know, um, am I, am I actually contributing something, um, to, uh, to the program? And, um, yeah, I had some really, really challenging ceremonies along the way. And I think that's also part of, you know, at least in my own experience working with this medicine, the deeper that you go, um, it's almost like relearning everything all over again. So, uh, you know, I remember hearing, I was interested in facilitating. And at the time, um, I know, well, one of the requirements as it were, was they wanted facilitators to have around a hundred ceremonies, personal ceremonies. And the reason for that is, you know, by a hundred ceremonies, you've kind of done the bulk of your work. Um, not that it's over by any means, but, you know, you've done a lot of the, the digging and um, how, not just that, not just digging into that work, but how does a person actually choose to navigate when certain challenging things come up, um, things that are really jarring. Um, and you know, I think I was at around probably 20, 20 or 30 by the end of month, what, four or five. And um, just thinking like, oh my gosh, you know, like <laughs> there's another 50 plus to go. Um, and, um, you know, I think at the time as well, like pretty much all of the facilitator roles were I mean, there was a, a pretty good stable of both male and female facilitators. So um, it was, I didn't really have my hopes pinned on that. And, um, you know, so I tried to find other ways that I could contribute and, um, you know, potentially stay on longer and um, was able to kind of carve out a role for myself there. And at the end of the four months, um, had a meeting with the owner, uh, Matthew and Debbie, um, who was, um, who well, still is the, uh, temple manager, uh, director. And, uh, they asked me to come back full time and yeah, I went back to the States to kind of just tie up loose ends. And, um, I think I went back for about a, one to two months. And after that, like I was pretty much at the temple for the next five years, more or less straight. So, yeah, that's kind of the long, short winded version <laughs> of, uh, yeah. Journey into the medicine space. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Wonderful. W what was that like, uh, going from what seems like a very kind of, as you said, corporate world, mm -hmm face, 
presentation you know, uh, to then being immersed in the Amazon jungle and working also with the, the Shipibo people who are very immersed themselves in, in that line of work. And were there, was there something in that process that you also learned or, or changed from? Um, well, I'm trying to think of how, how best to say this because I, I don't know if I'd ever change anything as far as the events or things that brought me to where I am now. Um, you know, if, if anything else, um, I have a, a profound appreciation for my time and experience in that, that kind of corporate setting. Um, I wouldn't choose to go back there, uh, to that place, but, um, it's a really good study in, in human nature. I mean, you know, um, especially with, you, you see an aspect or a slice of, of group dynamics, of power structures, um, how people choose to engage and inter- interact um, with one another. Um, in some respects, it remind me of, of high school. You know, I mean, th- there were cliques. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's power uh, struggles between different, you know, departments, different managers. Um, you know, and it, at times it, it seemed petty to me. And I, I, I feel like I could say that because I was outside of it. Um, I wasn't necessarily, you know, um, I wasn't required to engage with it to the same degree um, that, you know, the other employees had to. So that was a bit of a, um, of a protective layer. Uh, seeing, it was interesting, you know, I mean, I know you've heard this as well, you know, hearing the Shipibo healers kind of talk about the, the Western mind and the Western condition and, um, you know, all of these, these things that they see when guests come down, you know, it's a lot of this, you know, fear, and I don't want to necessarily say it's manufactured, but it, in a way it is, you know, um, a lot of the fear or anxiety that is created because of, you know, the social structure of how, of what we choose, um, to place importance on. And so, you know, without romanticizing, um, you know, the indigenous cultures, um, in some ways it's a lot simpler, but that doesn't necessarily exclude them from having, you know, their own internal conflicts or problems or issues. Um, it's just different. It has a different, uh, color and different texture to it. Um, so, you know, uh, it was interesting. The more time that I was able to, you know, just be around Shipibo, um, you know, maestros and maestras, like, I, I was able to pick up like, you know, some of these things where there, there might be some conflicts or some, you know, resentment or jealousy, you know, and it's human nature. And one of the things that I appreciate about the teachers that I've had that are Shipibo is they don't deny, you know, that they're on this heightened or, you know, um, a spiritual superior level. Like they readily admit that they're humans. And at the end of the day, like, yes, you know, they still have their their own work, um, to, to do around certain, um, human characteristics or behaviors. But I think that there's more presence. There's a, 
there is an awareness and an openness to exploring that rather than, you know, projecting it outward. And I think that's maybe the biggest difference um, that I, you know, not to overgeneralize, but to kind of just put out there is, you know, there's so much ego in um, modern society. I, I don't even want to say Western society, but in, in modern developed societies, this sense of, you know, me and ego. Um, and if something happens, how does that impact me? And how does, how do, how do I choose to interpret that, you know, within my place of the larger scheme of, you know, family, society, um, dynamics. So, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, I see it as a lot of layers that we collectively have chosen to put on ourselves, you know, um, distractions as it were. And that creates a lot of, um, a lot of layers to work through to actually get into, you know, this, the seat of who we are at our core, you know, who am I? Um, you know, are they, am I this collection of societal beliefs, um, or family values, you know, whatever those things may be at the end of the day, do those things, do I choose to allow those things to define me? as an individual. And, um, you know, it's, it's a really interesting process to go through. Um, and what that process requires is actually time, time and space. And there's not that much, um, importance given to opening up into that, that space of self exploration, um, in modern society and developed, um, technological, um, social structures. Um, one of the beauties, um, if I can, one, one of the beautiful aspects that I, I felt that has come with this pandemic is at, in that initial stage, like it kind of forced people <laughs> to have that time and space. It, and I'm sure it was very uncomfortable for a lot of people because it's maybe the first time where they've had to be with themselves and their thoughts and, you know, that can be really, really, um, unpleasant, you know, um, if someone isn't ready for it. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I answered mm -hmm. your question. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned this idea of, <clears throat> like, it, it takes a certain amount of ceremonies and obviously that that's to some degree different for different people, but, but there needs to be at least an ample amount. Yeah. Where, as you said, one begins to, to dig up things mm -hmm. and then also, as you said, to, to begin to be able to work through those. Yeah. Can you talk about that more? And it doesn't have to be just from your experience, but from, from your time being surrounded by many people who are going through those processes, like what that looks like. Uh, I mean, obviously it can be very personal to certain individuals, but maybe more on like an archetypical level, like what, yeah. what does that mean? I think to some degree, maybe people listening who've, who've worked with plants may, may have some idea, but maybe also for people who haven't, like what, what is being dug up and, and what, yeah. what is being worked through? Um, 
Well, that's a, <laughs> it's a big question. Um, I mean, you know, I, I definitely want to um, be mindful of the guests that I've had the um, the honor of being a witness to their process. So um, I, I think maybe the easiest thing to the easiest way for me to answer that question is to just pull something from my own personal experience. Um, so, um, okay. So this adoption piece has been, um, you know, it's very personal to me and, um, you know, I, my parents have been, my family has been very supportive in this, but, you know, one of the things that came up for me that was really shocking in in the sense of like it was right there you know how did I not see this before um was seeing this pattern of that felt for me very much predicated on my early childhood and um you know not not being able to trust so um the pattern that i was actually able to first when i saw it um you know that was you know at a deeper level um for me was uh seeing this really insidious game that i would play mentally and it was on a very, very, very deep subconscious level. And it was testing people, you know, whether that was family, whether that was friends, whether that was, you know, girlfriends in the past. And it was how, how much can I push them away to the point where are they going to come back? Like, you know, doing you know, either actions, you know, that could be not telling the truth. It could be, you know, um, you know, cheating, um, on a partner. Um, like at what point can I push someone to make that decision of like, I'm done. Like I, I can't deal with you anymore. Like you're just too wacky. And the game and it was a very um, self-harming game um, that I, I play with myself was, <clears throat> you know, and this really was more around um, friends or, you know, girlfriends, um, you know, personal relationships where it was, it would get to the point where I would do something, you know, either breaking trust or confidence that um, they would leave. Or, you know, they'd break, break off that, that relationship. And the moment that it would happen, there was a part of me that was validated. It was like, yep, I knew it. I knew I couldn't count on this person. I knew I couldn't trust this person. And it's interesting because I had this really beautiful conversation with my mom. Um, and, I mean, growing up as a teenager, I, I was probably, well, yeah, I, I wasn't the 
best behaved kid and I, I definitely knew how to press my mom's buttons and uh, we got into a lot of um, yeah as it were battles you know nothing physical but just yeah a lot of shouting and yelling and um, and you know there was I don't ever recall a moment where I I, maybe as as hard as I would try on a subconscious level to push her away, she she would she would always be there. And you know, as I started to work with the medicine and you know have you know a lot of these memories um, come back to me um, in ceremony of being able to witness my my behavior or my pattern or, you know, a a certain interaction from, um, a a detached point of view and actually seeing like, Oh, okay. I see what I was doing there. I was trying to push this person away because I was testing them. Right. And, um, you know, it, it wasn't a fun experience to go through, um, you know, to actually see that aspect of myself, that I was causing harm to another person because I wanted to test them to see if they would actually, you know, um, continue to, you know, maintain that relationship or, you know, would they abandon me basically um, because of this trauma that I had, you know, um, from adoption, would they abandon me? And if they wouldn't, then I was like, okay, well, then I need to push the, that line a little bit more, right? And, you know, I, I think most sane people will get to a point um, in a relationship where it's like, this is not healthy for me. Like, I just need to exit. And, you know, it, it was kind of this point of self-reflection of like, how many people have I harmed? How many people have I hurt? Because I wanted to prove to myself that I couldn't count on them, you know, and, and that, that's a very, um, that it, on, on the surface, you know, just talking about it, you know, I can, I can make sense of it, you know, on an intellectual level. And, you know, I, I'm assuming that some of the listeners out there, um, that are hearing this, they're like, oh, okay, you know, I can, they can understand that, but this is where the medicine component comes in for me was to feel it, to, to actually feel, um, my own, my own guilt, my own shame, um, my own sadness, um, you know, all of these emotions, you know, in a very, very visceral way, um, around this programming, you know, this defense mechanism that I had created for myself, uh, to, to, to be safe and to actually see that, um, and to experience it, um, what was challenging, like, um, and also, you know, you know, there, there are guests that have gone through their own process. And one of the, the thing that fascinates me with this work is that the inner child that's, you know, hurt, you know, um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a trauma, um, that, you know, people will automatically go, oh my God, that's, that's horrific that 
this person, you know, experienced or went through, you know, it could be something that on the surface seems, you know, for some people, you know, insignificant, but, you know, for a child to experience, um, that separation of self, you know, where something has to come in to protect, you know, um, you know, is, is very, very personal and very profound and to go back into those types of traumas for lack of a better word um and to re-engage with that that moment in time where the trauma happened or to actually see yourself as that that hurt child um and to actually show up for yourself in that moment and be like you know you're okay and you know i'm here for you now um you know, there's, um, you know, I, I believe, you know, Gabor Mate, you know, talks about, you know, trauma is, um, any trauma really comes down to this, you know, separation of your authentic, from your authentic self. And um, that's always, you know, the first time I heard that was at the temple. And um, it's, I've held on to that, you know, um, in my own work and then also working with guests, you know, uh, to see... And to feel, you know, um, what, what that can look like and what, how that can have an impact, uh, on an individual. Um, and it doesn't, you know, even have to be in early childhood. It can be at a later stage in life, but that, that separation from your authentic self of who you are at your core, you know, um, when you strip away all of the layers um, and projections that, you know, family, friends, society, you know, places onto an individual. Um, you strip all of that away, you know, what's left? You know, who, who are you at the end of the day? Who am I? Um, do I choose to, you know, buy in and believe these things that I've been told about myself? You know, some of them positive, some of them negative, um, you know, but to actually explore that and to see where so, where some of these uh, maybe harmful or hurtful um, self-beliefs have been created in part because of something that's happened in the past. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of the deeper work um, to see these patterns uh, for me um, and that I've seen guests go through and navigate um, – in their own way and everyone is so uniquely different and beautiful how they get to that point is um it's that warrior's journey you know it's it's very very personal and no one individual will have the same exact path um should they choose to put in the work and the time to you know get to these places so yeah you mentioned that often what people hear about and kind of this idea of setting aside expectation or, or these extremes. Yeah. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and can you give examples of, of um, like what those kind of common things are that people hear? Yeah. I'd, I'd say, you know, if someone is doing their research about, you know, they're, they've heard about working with plant medicine, specifically, you know, ayahuasca or uni as the people call it. Um, you know, you hear horror stories of, you know, uh, you know, for the most part, females being taken advantage of in the ceremony space by, you know, um, 
a very questionable curandero. Um, you know, that's those are probably some of the more common um, horror stories that you hear. Um, you know, the other ones, uh, you know, tend to be that really around the container and how that space is being held and who's holding it, you know. Um, do they have the experience? Do they have the training to to work with guests um, in in a very heightened um, emotional and um, spiritual state uh, where, you know, you're very open to you're impressionable, you know? Um, so, uh, being told, uh, one story that, you know, really, um, was, uh, for me, you know, horrific to hear about was, you know, this was at, <clears throat> I don't actually know the center, but, um, you know, one of the people that was working in the space, I don't know if they were actually facilitating, but they told a guest like that, you know, in a former life, um, you know, they're responsible for the mass murder of, you know, 10,000 people, you know, and it, it's like, <laughs> okay, what, what's the point in like, you know, re passing that information on to someone, you know, and it wasn't, requested it wasn't asked it was just kind of like you did this you know and without really um being aware of that person's mental state or emotional state and how that would land and how that potentially the effect of you know being told something pretty horrific about you know yourself now who knows if that's true or not right but to have someone else tell you or to for someone to tell another person that you know, is, um, yeah, I don't view that as being ethical, you know, working with the medicine. Um, it's really a facilitator's job isn't really to, you know, tell or guide, you know, direct the person in the direction of how this process unfolds, but to be kind of a, an anchor in providing a, a sense of safety and stability and, you know, the way that I was trained at the temple was, um, you know, it's not about me, the facilitator, right? It's really about that individual and what can I do to support them? And oftentimes that's just listening, you know, allowing that person to figure things out for themselves. So, um, you know, horror stories uh, run the gambit from, you know, uh, you know, inappropriate physical contact with a guest to um, not uh, providing a safe container to uh, saying certain things to a guest that are, you know, harmful, detrimental um, to their process. Um, you know, uh, providing questionable medicine. Um, I mean, there, there's just, yeah, it's... It is, in some respects, the Wild West because we're working with a a very potent plant medicine, and I've spoken to a handful of you know therapists that are that work with the medicine, but are also part of you know um, these larger organizations, whether that's IC or Maps, and um, you know one of their concerns is like there's no standard. 
There's no actual framework. And this is where it gets to be... I don't know what the answer is, actually, because in the way that I've been trained into the medicine, it's through the Shipibo tradition, and it has its own customs. It has its own way of working with the medicine. And to try and impose or bring in a Western mindset that puts in a structure, I, I, I don't know where that balance or that line is between respecting the tradition while also providing a level of structural safety that Western medical practitioners would be comfortable with because that would override, I think, a lot of the, the traditional, um, the tradition in, in how they work with the medicine, you know, it's, um, yeah. So I think that's in part where there's a lot of uncertainty, um, when working with ayahuasca or any other very potent plant medicine is these are traditions that have been in place for, you know, some would say thousands of years, um, to bring in the Western, a Western medical model to place on top of that, um, you know, I, I think needs to be done very, very cautiously. And, you know, first and foremost, being aware of the actual tradition and what that means. So going back to your question, I mean, yeah, the, the horror stories are oftentimes, um, you know, it's a, it's a byproduct in some respects of, you know, people maybe not doing their homework, um, jumping in, uh, there, there is a bit of a, an eagerness in some circles to trip balls, um, as it were in the jungle. And, you know, um, you know, I've, I've met a few quote unquote psychonauts that, you know, have come to the medicine and again, to, bring in, you know, this point of view that I've heard pretty much all of my Shipibo teachers say is ayahuasca is not a drug. It's a medicine, you know, and, um, you know, someone who's looking to see rainbows and unicorns, like, yeah, they may see that in a ceremony, but at the end of the day, like, what, what are you taking away from it? Like this experience of drinking the medicine, sitting in a circle, you know, that there's something deeper there that, um, if the person is willing to engage with it can be quite beautiful, um, and transformative. But, um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, um, yeah, what, what's, what is the right way and what's the wrong way um, to, to work with this medicine. Um, I have my own views. Um, I've always worked within the Shipibo system and tradition. That's what resonates with me. Um, and this is not to say that, you know, other traditions um, such as, you know, um, 
Santa Daime out of Brazil or, you know, um, uh, other traditions out of um, Ecuador, you know, um, or Colombia, that those are wrong, you know. Um, they're just different ways of working. And I think it's really important that if anyone is wanting to sit with this medicine um, specifically that they do their research, like really understand like what are the differences between these different traditions and what is their approach and what is the purpose um, of partaking in this medicine within that system. So more often than not, I think the horror stories come with yeah, uh, an ignorance. Um, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. It's just a person doesn't really know what they're stepping into, um, quite possibly, and hasn't vetted for themselves the proper, you know, um, ceremony space. You know, I know that there's quite a few um, underground uh, ceremonies running in North America and, you know, I personally would, yeah, I, I would be very mindful of, you know, choosing to, to do so, um, even now with my experience. So on the one end, these kind of, as you said, horror stories, and then the other end being like these kind of magically visionary yeah. experiences where yeah. people are just kind of looking to come down and replicate that? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, the... The ones that crack me up um, or I find humor in are, you know, the, the ones where, um, you know, people are, they, they feel like they're the second coming of Christ or, you know, <laughs> um, which, you know, maybe they are, you know, who, who am I to say that they're not? But, um, you know, more often than not, um, the ones that are, that fall on the, the, oh, oh my, you know, oh my goodness, like it was this mind blowing experience. If you actually listen to what the people describe, um, and this is where I would personally make the distinction, like, are they talking more about the actual visuals that happen? Because your the visual space can be quite, um, uh, intense and beautiful, you know? Um, and yeah, some people may see something like, a replay of an old movie, you know, of a beautiful experience, um, or a memory. Um, and you know, those are, those are great. Um, one of the things that I encourage, um, guests when I've facilitated, you know, before they go back home is to remind them like the experiences and the visions, if, if they had them, um, you know, they're very personal and they're meant for you. And there's a difference between having that experience and what that felt like and what maybe that person actually on a literal level saw versus telling it to another person. Because the more that you actually start to share that moves from an experience in time to a story and the story will always morph over time it'll become more colorful it'll become more fantastic it'll become you know and it it's it no longer has that very personal um connection you know you start to lose that the more you 
you re- retell the story. And just to remind them that like, this is a gift. This is a gift to you. And it doesn't mean you can't share it with other people, but maybe be mindful of how frequently and who you choose to share that story with. And, you know, again, uh, Shipibo, um, you know, the healers that I've, you know, had the opportunity to speak to, I mean, yeah, they often will not talk about their vision space, you know, with other people because it's, it's theirs. It's meant for them, you know, and, you know, in certain moments they might share some aspect of it, but rarely do they go into full detail about the whole kaleidoscope, purple unicorn, rainbow experience. Um, because it's, it's meant for them, you know, and it's, it's, it, it, it is a gift. Um, and I, I think it can also, the part of the reason why I'm, I'm very wary of focusing on that visual component is it, even by me, you know, in, for example, like retelling my own personal experience around something that happened in that space visually, that's what people are going to kind of focus on and latch on to. And it, it's a component of the actual ceremony. It's not the whole ceremony in and of itself, but it's a component. But being humans, you know, the easiest thing to relate to and to share to other people are the things that, you know, we can express to other people. So, you know, whether they believe it or not um, is a different story, but, you know, does it, what's the effect of that? You know, so, um, you know, again, just a word of caution to, to guests, you know, is like, hey, if you want to share about your ceremony, that's great, but, you know, try and ground it into something that is tangible, you know, because if you tend to stray and just stay in this fantastical, magical space to someone who has no, you know, connection or awareness or even maybe an openness to that, you know, quite potentially they could be thinking like, yeah, you're tripping balls, you know, um, you know, okay. Yeah. So, so what you saw, purple rainbows and, you know, or purple unicorns and rainbows. Um, so rather than talking about that and focusing on those visual aspects, what did it bring up for you on an emotional level? Because between humans, everyone for the most part can understand what compassion, immense gratitude, you know, um, love, you know, feels like, you know, and, more often than not, you know, those images that come through in ceremony that are fantastical, they're, they're often, you know, connected with an emotional state, you know, of deep, deep, you know, love, you know, super profound, um, or a connection to everything, to life, you know, to the trees, to the plants, to, you know, um, a person in their family or their, their whole family or to society at large, you know, they, they can feel that on a very deep, deep, um, level. So yeah, those are kind of the extremes, but that I I haven't checked YouTube recently, but, um, earlier on, like, it seemed like the experiences that were talked about fell into those extreme spectrums of 
horrific horror stories of, you know, just, you know, poorly held spaces or curanderos that were very questionable and how they worked with, you know, predominantly female guests um, to um, inexperienced or um, not untrained facilitators to that other spectrum of just super fantastic, you know, um, amazing, you know, visuals. And yeah, there's, that's what sell. I don't want to say sells, but that's what will get the attention, you know, when people are talking about medicine and, um, again, kind of like, I'm assuming like your format, you know, it takes time for these things to really be fully expressed because they can't be, you know, reduced down into a soundbite to really, um, relay or convey what that experience is like. Yeah. Great. So on, on that one end of the spectrum, like the, the, the horror stories, it seems like a lot of that can be, as you said, vetted through the opposite of ignorance, which, which I guess to some degree is like knowledge, like educating oneself, like, uh, finding a place that's, that's well held. And, and then the other end, I think you use the word emotion that, that oftentimes like these very fantastical or visual experiences, there's, there's something underneath that there's an emotion or there, there's a, there's a felt sense that that experience is trying to, to point towards. And, um, I often see that in, we had mentioned this idea of like expectation. And if, if you ask people, often like, why are you doing this work? Mm-hmm. There's often, it, it's very interesting. The answer is often like a negative mm-hmm. in the sense of like, well, I want to get rid of my trauma right. or, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to have this weight anymore or I need to find my life's purpose, which is also a negative because yeah. it's not, it's not pointing towards the thing that I, it, that I'm actually looking for mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and it's, it's really interesting because I think it's often difficult for people to really express that emotion or the felt sense of what yeah. it is they're actually looking for. So would you say often those visual, those really kind of fantastic things, they're, they're pointing to something deeper, whether that's a sense of awe or a sense of, of mystery or a sense of mm-hmm. just like, wow, like the world is way bigger than I could have imagined. Great question. Um, I, I don't know. Could be. <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, if if that's, um, uh, you know, if not a component, like why, you know, those visuals come in um, as they do. You know, it's the beauty of this work is I, I feel like the people I respect that are within the medicine space, whether those are curanderos or facilitators um, or people who are apprenticing, um, they they come in with the beginner's mind, like irregardless of how many ceremonies they've had, you know, could be a hundred, could be 200, could be 500. There's still this curiosity of seeking, you know, of wanting to understand, of wanting to explore. Um, so yeah, I, I, 
I would say yes <laughs> to that question. Yeah. So then, if those are the extremes, the 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 bulk of the work, how would you describe that? It's it's this process of digging up, of of, of self exploration, of self inquiry, of shifting and cleaning and clearing and aligning. What again? It's so personal. But if those are the two extremes, and and those in in a sense they can happen. Yeah. But that there's this whole other end in the middle where kind of it seems like you're alluding to is the bulk of the work that's yeah. where it's happening. Yeah. Uh I mean I would say since I've worked with the medicine you know my ceremonies are are very different from when I first started. Um you know they're they're different in that they're they don't seem to carry the same like um oh wow <laughs> impact um and i i think a lot of that or i feel that a lot of that is because coming into the medicine and st- as i started to work with it um it, it was very unfamiliar you know and you know as much as i was i was learning to work with the medicine the med- the medicine was learning to work with me. And so, um, it's matured. It's maybe the best way to put it. My ceremonies have matured and, um, yeah, you know, there's, there's going to be, I'd say a general level of cleaning, you know, um, and clearing that needs to get done. Uh, and that could, take you know a, it's a very different number of ceremonies i mean it's it's hard to put in a quantifiable number on that you know for any individual um you know and it's it's not just the ceremonies in and of themselves it's the work that a person chooses to do outside of that space because the ceremony is that that doorway that allows you to kind of step into this space that um, Irene, um, I don't know if you've had her on yet, but, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, one of my favorite things, um, that she would kind of share with guests is like, it is ceremony is that liminal space. It is the space between, you know, where we are conscious and, you know, from a day-to-day wake, um, state into this kind of dream space. It's, this very special, unique place to step into. But you, you're only allowed to really step into it for a moment in time. You're not meant to live there. So the insights and the awareness that, you know, we hopefully gain about ourselves in that space, the real work is to take that outside of that space and apply it to our daily life, you know. So when... You know, anger. I I worked on a lot <laughs> um, when I first started, and um, you know, it was it was taking those lessons about how I choose to engage with anger, my own anger. You know, the things that triggered me. You know, all of the narratives that I would co- you know collect that would reinforce you know my my sense of injustice or being wronged or you know um, that would feed into the, this anger piece. 
and recognizing that, you know, um, being able to actually be okay with that emotion and give it space, but not deny it. Um, but also not get swept up into that kind of, um, the energy of it, you know, and almost reveling in, in being angry and like, yeah, this is mine. And, you know, um, feeling, you know, it's, it's a very powerful emotion, but, you know, to actually find within myself, like, okay, this is, this is trying to tell me something. It has a message for me. The emotion has an, has a message for me. It has a lesson for me to, to learn from if I choose to pay attention to it. So, you know, the, that, that's kind of where I would say that that ceremony space, that, that bulk in the middle between these, you know, what are often the most commonly shared experiences on the extremes, the bulk of it is really in that space of like, okay, like I, am able to take this away from this ceremony. It was, you know, this theme came up for me or, you know, this, um, this aspect of myself came up that I need to look at. And sometimes it's, it's a reaffirmation of some very, very beautiful things about ourselves. And other times it's things that are not so pleasant, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's equilibrium. You know, we are light and dark, you know, we are light and shadow. And so, being fully accepting, you know, and then taking those lessons from the ceremonies and applying them to our daily life, to my daily life. Um, you know, that that's the work and it's challenging. It's some lessons are very easy, um, or integrate, you know, very quickly. And I, I kind of view integration as when I don't need to think about you know, behaving or acting in a different way where I'm not reactionary, but I'm responsive, you know, where I don't have to actually mentally think about it and it just is, then I've integrated something, right? A new way of being. And, you know, there are definitely lessons that I'm still working on, you know, to to fully integrate. Um, Others are, have been integrated a lot easier than I thought they would be, you know, um, so that that's kind of that bulk. And I would say, you know, I still have ceremonies that are, are challenging, but they don't come with the same frequency as they did earlier on. So a lot of what I feel my current ceremonies when I do sit for myself, it's fine-tuning. It's like, you know, um, this analogy of, you know, when you're driving, you know, on a straight road, you know, if you keep your hand at 12 o'clock, like at some point you're going to, you're gradually going to veer off the road, right? And either go into opposing traffic or oncoming traffic or, you know, go off the edge. So it's like your hand, you have to constantly kind of fine tune, right? So you're driving in a straight line and that's, that's where I feel, you know, the work, um, the maturity comes in with the ceremonies is, um, yeah, it's that fine course correction. It's like, okay, let's revisit this part. Like you're, you're still, you know, I'm still uh, being challenged or being triggered by this aspect of um, 
my own projection outward or, you know, and oftentimes that's uh, self-reflection internally, you know. Um, things aren't the way that I want them to be or I wish them to be different, you know, and then redirecting that, well, what's that say about myself, you know. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of the, where the work is. It's not as exciting in, in the sense of being able to tell other people like, oh my God, like, you know, I had this uh, mind-blowing experience um, the other night and I got this amazing insight about myself. It's more, yeah, nuanced and kind of there. So, <laughs> Do you think part of that, like you said, is, is just like modes of format, like obviously on YouTube, it's easier to... Mm-hmm speak about something for 15 seconds in a soundbite or th- those kind of experiences, they, they they carry more weight in a way if we say like, oh, you know, I, I went to the fifth dimension and I talked to the elves and yeah. it's like, holy shit, wow. that yeah. uh, Or the opposite, like I had this terrible ceremony and I was abused. And I mean, that that's also very impactful yeah. in a way. Um, but even, you know, like we've spent a long time talking about this and even then, it's a bit hard to grasp in a way because there's something very ephemeral or intangible, and it's as you said, it's very personal, mm-hmm. and that's that's just harder to express in a way. Right. It's uh, it, it's something, as you said, it takes time and space, and it's not so sexy in a way. It's yeah. it's like yeah, I went into my anger. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But but personally, that has a huge resonance. Like, as you said, if we just say that, it it doesn't have the same resonance as... as because always that, that ceremonial space, as Irene was saying, in that, like, limbic space, it's there's something very profound there. Mm-hmm. And yet it's, it's very difficult to put it in words, too, and yet it's very impactful for the person. But, I, I, you know, this is what I love about this this work is... It's an experiential process, like irregardless of how, I mean, we could talk about this for years, I'm sure, you know, Um, and you could talk about it for years with various people, but there's no way to, for someone who is curious but hasn't experienced the medicine to fully understand it until they go through that experience and that you know it and that's the beauty of it like you have to experience it for yourself and i'm not by any means trying to you know in persuade or say you know people have to do this but it's you won't know until you go through that process for yourself and that's that's the beautiful part of it it's and a part of the human experience like you know I've, i've never been in combat you know um, I'm, there's an interest in it for me on a personal level, um, because it, you know, it's kind of pushing that human experience to the extreme, you know, uh, one of the things that I find fascinating about veterans and I've, I've worked with a few, um, you know, veterans that have come through to work with the medicine is, you know, what other experience can can humans have that brings you right up to that fabric 
of life and death, you know, like, and willingly, you know, most people it's, it's an accidental type of thing or, you know, it's through certain situations or circumstances. Um, but like in combat, like you are, you know, a person is going into a conflict knowing that they may not come back. And then, so that, that thread, that, that barrier between this reality and what's on the other side of it is very, very thin. And if you're faced with that on a continuous basis, I mean, that's got to have a massive impact on the psyche, on the, you know, on your emotional level, on spirit. And, you know, I, I have immense gratitude and admiration for um, people who have served and are serving to take that step because, you know, you know, I, I looked at joining the military when I was younger and, um, I mean, it, it, it just came back to me, like as much as there was this call to want to kind of put myself into that type of environment or that situation, there was also something that was holding me back. You know, it's like, you know, once you have that experience, like, it imprints on you in such a way that, you know, you don't know what that, that outcome is going to be like, you know, you're going to be changed. That's for sure. And I think it's, it's kind of the same working with medicine is like, you, you can hear about it. You can hear, read about it. Um, you can watch videos about it. You can, um, talk to people who have gone through that experience, but until you actually take that step, you don't know. And, you know, without freaking anybody out, um, I mean, the, the way that we work with medicine, um, you know, that there is, there is a life and death component to it. You know, um, if not, not the actual drinking of the medicine, but, you know, on a spiritual level, um, you know, on a psychological level, there are people that, you know, potentially can, you know, face, uh, death. Um, there are people who have died and again, that goes into the horror stories. Um, you know, usually there's preexisting conditions, but this isn't something to be taken lightly. And so, you know, it's, I, I do view people who choose to come and work with medicine like they are embarking, you know, maybe they're taking the first step in that heroic journey um, of themselves because they are going to be different by the time they come through the other side. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think that's something that, that really drew me to martial arts, and it's it's certainly not the same as combat yeah. because the differences in combat, there's, there's no referee, there's no yeah. one to... If you, there's no tapping out, exactly. there's no saying enough. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it kind of, it recreates that in as safe a way as possible, yeah. kind of going to those extremes, like yeah. literally having someone choke you out, strangle <laughs> you, yeah. uh, cut your breathing off, uh, like beat you up. Um, yeah. uh, you mentioned Joe Rogan. I think he often describes uh, like mixed martial arts as like, uh, 
this like uh, extreme problem solving, but with deadly consequences. Because yeah. um, also you can die. Yeah. I mean, and, and people have. It's it's not very common because it's, it's trying its best it can to yeah. create an environment where that doesn't happen. But there's that possibility, and um, and that's interesting. You, you describe like this idea that that there was something about combat that that drew you to that. Um, and that seems like a, a very common theme. I mean, even ayahuasca is called vine of the dead. Yeah. And I think that's often something people don't really, they just kind of brush it off. Like, well, yeah. that's a silly name. It's, you know, this, it's rainbows and unicorns. But, <laughs> uh, you know, ultimately, as you said, depending on how deep we want to go, yeah. there's potentially this this facing death. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's in a literal sense or in that limbic state of actually facing one's mortality and being willing to to face that, to surrender to that, to to come to terms with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that's something that, that whether people realize or not, is kind of inherently drawing them to that? Is that, because, you know, also in in, in much of our society, um, I mean, certainly there's a lot of things that are wrong but at the same time, we, we've never lived in such a peaceful time. I mean, yeah. if you think of most of human history, especially if you were a man, a young man, like the yeah. chances were you were engaged in some form of combat yep. and your life was on the line. I mean, you know, human life expectancy wasn't yeah. that long. And, and a lot of that was other things, health and food. But mm-hmm. but a lot of that was you may die in combat. Yeah. Um, and that was just really a part of people's lives. And mm-hmm. and for most of us now, we don't have that. And I think to some degree, that's like where that reverence or respect for people who do enter that. Yeah. Uh, because whether one wants to or not, like that changes one's reality. Mm-hmm. Like you, you're put in, in that circumstance that most people in their lives, like they, they never face that intensity of, of those stakes. Yeah. 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 It's interesting when, and there's, I'd say it happens more frequently than, than I'd anticipated when, um, I actually started to facilitate, but, um, it wasn't uncommon to have a guest go through this sense of dying in ceremony and on a lot, on an intellectual and logical level, like they knew they were fine, but because everything gets ramped up, you know, um, ayahuasca, uh, is amplifies, um, everything. And so even though they were aware, um, on a logical level, like, you know, no, they're, they're not actually dying. This overwhelming sense, this feeling that they were dying, um, you know, would come up, um, and it wasn't every single guest, but it, it was a significant portion out of the groups that I've worked with where this would happen. And in processing them, you know, um, just kind of letting them share and express and talk through, you know, because it, it's extremely jarring um, and scary to go through that process. And what was really fascinating to hear them as they would start to unravel that experience was more to the fact that a part of them 
something that they had, you know, that was a cornerstone to their identity or was a way of how they, they self-identified as who they were, that was being killed off or that was dying, which was really interesting because it, it took them in, in a very visceral way, but metaphorically, to that point of facing mortality. And what, what did that mean for them? You know, how did they choose to, to work through that? You know, um, but yeah, there's, uh, de- death is really interesting. And, um, you know, I think that's going to be the quote for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It's the unknown, right? We don't know. Um, and so, yeah, what, what happens, you know, after, you know, we, we pass on, you know, there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of theories around, you know, that our spirit, you know, goes back into a collective, um, that, or our spirit, you know, um, you know, just moves on, you know, maybe comes back into, uh, another body. Um, I mean, but we don't know. And it, it, it is one of those beautiful mysteries that I think is, um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating to sit with, but going back to your point around, you know, we live in probably the safest times in human history. You know, it makes you really curious around what is this mental condition that, you know, modern society, humans in modern society have. It's like we manufacture our own ways to scare ourselves, to create um, conflict, right? And it's because everything is safe now. I don't have to worry about getting food or hunting for food. You know, I don't have to worry about shelter. You know, I don't have to worry about some animal in the middle of the night, you know, uh, coming into my camp and basically killing everybody. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very safe. It, it's in some ways um, sterile. And so what is the byproduct of that sterility is we need to create, you know, our own enemies, our own shadows, our own fears, you know, it's, it's a really, again, going back to kind of my own psychological, like, test of, you know, pushing people away. It's like, as a collective society, you know, we're talking about thousands of years of human evolution. And, you know, our, you know, the oldest part of our brain, this reptilian part of our brain, is so deeply encoded that, in, you know, when we don't have anything to actually fear, we'll actually create something, <laughs> you know, and that's conflict or that's fear, you know. I mean, the amount of horror movies that are out there, like, why do we have horror movies? Because it's that adrenaline rush, it, you know, brings us back into that, that state, you know, of fear, f- fear for our lives, you know. What's, what's around that corner, you know? Is Jason, the other Jason, you know, going to wake up from the dead and, you know, come after the rest of the camp? So, 
yeah, it's that's a really interesting point that you bring up. It's because we live in such um, safe times, you know, given the history of you know humanity. The you know death no longer is in our face constantly. So how do we how do we respond to that? How do we react to that? Do you think there's like a, a symbiotic relationship that's going on? Because it does seem this this work is 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 really spreading at at a incredible pace. I, I mean, I I remember ten twelve years ago, I had a good buddy who was part of Santa Daimi, so I had heard of ayahuasca. But if I mentioned that word to anyone, they had absolutely no idea what I was talking about. Um, and now it's it, it it feels much more mainstream um, because so much of this work it, it does seem to work on the mind. I mean, even with Shipibo, one of the words they often use is like shina. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's bringing balance. It's cleaning. It's clearing the mind. It's bringing alignment. Yeah. Um, and that, and I'm just kind of thinking out loud, but but. It, in the sense of like when we do begin, as you said, like to not be faced with death at, at potentially every turn, you know, walking in the jungle and a jaguar could come out. Like I, I have to be, there's a, there's a heightened sense of awareness that, yeah. that as those things were not necessarily faced with that, that these medicines, much as you said, they, they do, they heighten everything and they, they bring all of these things up. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, but even the, these expressions that I used to took, take for granted, like having a roof over your head, mm. almost everybody has a roof over their head now. You know, there's very few people who don't. I mean, I remember there was even times where, uh, like, I was traveling and I had no money. I was backpacking. I was quite young. And, like, I literally had no place to sleep. But I still slept under a bridge because there was like a man-made structure that was giving me shelter. And yet in the jungle, there's, you know, thatched roofs. And when there's a hole in that and it rains, which it rains a lot, (laughs) like I really appreciated what it means to have a roof over my head. And and, But very few people really think about that. We're just not faced with that or... You know, even little things like water, mm-hmm. like you have to carry all of your potable water yeah. and like carry that on your chest. And it's like, that's an effort, you know, and, but most of us, we turn on a tap yeah. and you know, especially probably for the majority of the audience, like they turn on their tap yeah. and clean water comes out, which yeah. is a miracle. Like there's all these lights here and all I had to do was push this switch and they, they just came on. Uh, you know, I didn't have to go look for... Yeah. Fat, kill an animal and get its fat and mold a little <laughs> candle and, you know, light that. And that was my light for, you know, 15 minutes or, yeah. or an hour. And um, so do, do you think there, I know that's kind of a long question, but do you think there's there's this symbiotic relationship? Because you also use this really interesting thing, which is not like to idealize or romanticize certain mm-hmm. things. And I think we can fall in that trap too. And yeah. One of the interesting things, which I think you were pointing towards too, is that you know even two thousand years ago, the Buddha was talking about this idea that suffering was inherent in life, and 
that was a very different lifestyle people were living, and yet he was still teaching these universal principles. So even at that time, people were suffering. They were identified with beliefs and thoughts and patterns. Um, But it does seem like it's this interesting moment where this work is really spreading. And so do you see any correlation between, like, why that's happening at this time? Is is there something that's lacking or that, that people are really needing and they're now reaching out to these? Um, God, I wish I had an answer for that. Um, <clears throat> I have my own belief. Um, I think you know, that's all. That's all yeah, we. Yeah. That's all we um, got. <laughs> so it's interesting. Like, I was in ceremony when the pandemic first really started to come in. Um, like it had just landed in New York, and. In in my ceremony, I saw. This, I mean, it, it was just represented as this really massive, like uh, you know, like in a desert. Uh, when you see like desert uh, sandstorms coming in, like it's just massive, and it's thick. Um, that's how the the virus was kind of, you know, relayed to me. And it was, and it, it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting, and but what was more immediate for me was like what was riding behind it. And it was just this, like this tidal wave of fear, fear and, and uncertainty. And I was like, that's massive. Like just actually, you know, kind of not just seeing it, but also like feeling like, you know, like this massive cloud. Um, and I'm, you know, this very small, like, you know, pinprick of a person, you know, looking up at this massive thing, you know, that's just moving. It has its own momentum, its own energy. And, um, you know, I was like, okay, wow. Like, uh, okay. In the face of that, like, you know, all of this other surface stuff, like kind of falls to the wayside. So, what what are what am I you know what what's humanity kind of left with, and my the hope that came from that experience that ceremony experience was like compassion and love like <laughs> you know this is a time like collectively as a as a species you know to really step into that you know love and compassion for each other and at the same time, you know, as it started to, you know, become more prevalent, you know, rather than just something like, okay, it's, you know, coming out of, you know, China and it's now in the UK and it's now on the East coast. And, you know, as it started to actually move across and then all of the lockdown and restrictions came in, it felt to me like a ceremony, like a dieta, like a plant dieta. It's like something's going on here. Where, whether it's nature, whether it's just something needs to find balance. Um, And this is an opportunity. That's all it is, is an opportunity um, with consequences for people to reset. So, yeah, self-quarantining, that, I know that was challenging for a lot of people. It wasn't fun. I didn't necessarily enjoy it, but it felt like a a plant dieta for me. I was like, wow, okay, I'm 
not by choice, but like, you know, because of circumstance, um, I kind of have to sit here and be with myself and maybe start looking at things that I've been pushing off to the side or suppressing because I'm too busy. I have other things to do day to day life, you know, um, type of things that are on the surface seem more important. (laughs) And it was really interesting. It was, it was like this global moment in time for people to, to take that opportunity, whether that was to connect back to themselves, to their family, to, to what actually was important. And, you know, I think it's still ongoing, you know, we don't, we're not going to know what the result is for probably several years, but, um, you know, I feel like with ayahuasca coming in, I wasn't surprised. The center that I um, was at, um, you know, Soltara in Costa Rica, it was, um, you know, we shut down uh, pretty quickly. But it was, we were booked for the rest of, you know, 2020. And that was at the beginning of, you know, the year. And so it was just like, the demand was there. Like, people were already wanting to come and work with the medicine and I, I don't know what it is. Um, if there's just this underlying current of people kind of finding or sensing something needs to change, whether that's within themselves or, well, obviously, um, within themselves, but on the greater scale, um, society at large. And so, <clears throat> you know, I, I love how the people talk about why they started to serve Westerners or, you know, guests, patients um, in, in ceremony because traditionally it was just the cundero that would drink the medicine and uh, the patients would come in and uh, get the work done on them without drinking. And, you know, the story that I've heard from several healers is that the plants wanted to, felt that they need to spread out and... You know, it's, I I wonder on, on some level, if, you know, that's part of the cause or part of the reason why there's this call for people to come and work with the medicine is like the plants are actually trying to reach out. They're trying to communicate in whatever way that they can. Um, and so, you know, that could be a component as to why there's more, uh, people coming to work with the medicine, um, it was interesting during the pandemic, the first, I mean, even now, but I noticed it within the first six months, like the number of former guests that were reaching out to me and like, as soon as this travel ban, as soon as the travel bans lift, like, you know, I'm ready to come and work with the medicine again. Like, I really feel like I need to work with it. And so, yeah, anecdotally, it seemed like there was some type of correlation or connection there um as far as what was happening globally how that was affecting people um and those that had worked with the medicine like felt this instant call or need desire to come in work with the medicine again um you know the going back to what you're talking about like you know having 
just shelter, a roof over your head, you know. Um, some, of, some of the best experiences I've had in my life were in the jungle where it was like, it was stripped down, like uh, being in a, a tambo, you know, with this jungle hut where we had compost toilets and, you know, water had to be, potted water had to be, you know, carried in. Um, not having light um, or lights, you know, we had candles and there was, it was rough in some respects, but at the same time, it was really comforting, you know, less, less can be more. And so, you know, I found when I was, you know, in the jungle, um, I fell into a natural circadian rhythm, you know, is I'd have a candle on maybe for a couple hours after the sunset, but I was usually in bed by eight thirty, nine o'clock and I'd wake up around sunrise. Um, like it, it just, there was a, a natural rhythm, you know, that was very easy to revert back into. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, the challenging moments of like when there was a massive rainstorm that came down and the winds blowing sideways through the mesh screen into your, into your tombow. Um, yeah, they're not pleasant. And, you know, in the moment you're kind of like, this sucks, but, um, like it wasn't, it wasn't the end of the world, you know? And, um, it felt, uh, like I, I really enjoyed the jungle. I enjoyed my time there. Um, I miss it. In, in some respects and reintegrating back when I left the temple, um, I ended up, uh, going to Costa Rica to, um, help run a ayahuasca center there and, you know, very different environment. Um, you know, it was, uh, the jungle is just special. <laughs> and, um, you know, coming from that environment to basically, more of a resort type of setting, it was like refamiliarizing myself with like flushing toilets with, you know, electricity. Um, and it was nice, you know, I, I definitely wasn't going to turn it down as far as like having those amenities, but at the same time it was, it was kind of like, ah, oh, like it's too easy now, you know? And so, you know, I, to go back to your, your question around like, why are people feeling this call to medicine? And it's like, I, I tend to get the sense like people, despite all of these modern conveniences and comforts that we have, the safety that they provide, um, the ease that life can happen, um, because of these conveniences, um, something on a deeper level, like whether that's a loss to nature, that loss to connection to our food chain, you know, um, you know, I wonder if that's part of the reason, like people are wanting to seek out, you know, this, this medicine, um, not just for that broader sense of getting back into nature and to connect to nature, but to themselves, you know, what, what do I actually really need? Do I need the two-car garage? Do I need the McMansion? Do I need all of these things that are constantly thrown at me that would validate me on a certain level 
within society's structure and tell me that I'm a good person and that I'm on track and that, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm worthy. And if I step out of that for a moment in time, like, does it still hold true? Or do I see them for what they are? You know, and it's not to, again, um, cast uh, or demonize, you know, people who who choose to live that lifestyle. I, I totally get it. You know, my family um, are are very much, you know, living that life, and you know, I would say they're happy by and large. Um, I, I think it at the end of the day, like what is the purpose of life you know what what does that mean what's the significance of that for an individual and um you know for some i think traditionally you know it, it was like you grow up you have children they get married they have children if you're fortunate enough to live that long you're able to see your grandchildren if you're really fortunate, you're able to see your great-grandchildren. And that's it, you know. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a perpetuation of, you know, um, the human existence, human experience. But, yeah, it's, it's a great question to ask. Like, what, at the end of the day, um, what has what has my life really meant to me you know um what have i spent the time that i've had the limited time that i've had on this uh this earth how have i spent it what have i done um it doesn't have to be anything grandiose either you know it's just like i think some of the i was listening to this one podcast and it was um with this uh former uh, green bray and he was talking about when he was in South America and he saw these kids, you know, in a shanty. And it was part of his jungle warfare training, you know, and like they had nothing. They had nothing. And the smiles and the joy that these children had, like for him, something resonated with him in seeing that, in seeing like they are destitute by Western standards, right? And yet there's this joy, this happiness that's there. And that stuck with them. And, you know, just hearing them say that, it, it, it reminded me of, you know, what I would see in the, the community, you know, in the village um, that was next to uh, the temple, you know, Tres Unidos. And, yeah, you know, they, there was... Not that they didn't desire or want, I'd say a lot of the the Western trappings, um, but they also found happiness in what they they had. You know, it wasn't like I don't know. It, it just seemed different. And again, I'm trying not. I, I want to be very grounded and not romanticizing that. But there was a something mentally. There was a difference in what importance um, there was in that community. It seemed, you know family, you know, was, seemed to be very high versus, you know, a new car, um, or whatever material thing there was, but yeah. 
Yeah, one of the fascinating things I I, I always noticed um, when I would go back to the states or Europe is is watching kids and and so often whether it's in restaurants or outside. Uh, kids would be having like a temper tantrum or crying or like yelling. And it's very rare that I ever saw that in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Like kids didn't really cry. Um, and, it, you know, it was fascinating. Like even, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of factors, but um, like a, a kid running and they would fall and I noticed a lot more, like in the U.S., the kid would start crying, but it wasn't coming from pain because there was a moment he would look to the parents <laughs> and it depended on how the parent reacted, what they did, yeah. based on what the child would do. And often in, in the Amazon, the kid would fall and he'd look to the parent and they'd just like grab him and <laughs> yeah. put him up in the thing or, you know, like, what are you doing? Da, da, da. Yeah. And the kid would be like, "Oh, there's no reward for crying, yeah. so I'm not going to cry." And then they just start laughing again, and it was as if it as if it never happened. Yeah. And um, it was also interesting when you were talking about kind of living in the jungle, and and that that resonated a lot too, because you know, as you said, it was like the the only light was a candle light, mm-hmm. and I remember many times where. I forgot to get a new pack of candle and I was at my last candle <laughs> and it went out and it's like, well, I guess it's bedtime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, even in Iquitos, I, I remember often people would sometimes like ask me like, Hey, can I bring you down anything from the States? And I'd always like, yeah. that was like salivating. I was like, Oh yeah, like this and this and this and this. But at a certain point it would run out yeah. and then there was no way of getting it again. Yeah. And I saw it, it in a way it wasn't serving me. It was because yeah. then I was always looking for this other thing. Yeah. And in Iquitos, it's it's this very isolated city. I mean, it's only accessible by air, which there's not a lot, and by right. boat, boat, which yeah. are fairly infrequent too. So there's not a lot of things coming in. And so, you know, like sometimes I'd have like a shopping list and it would be fascinating because if I found the thing, mm-hmm. it was this very joyous experience. Yeah. It was like, wow. Like, and it was never, because in a lot of the cultures we come from, it, if you want something, it's not only can you find it, it's there's 60 different varieties, yeah. you know, which one do I want? And and there it was, if I, if I found the thing, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was never good quality, yeah. you know, but it was like, wow, like it, it's yeah. a gift. You know? And, <laughs> and uh, like when I first came down there, there was no internet. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I'd enjoyed listening to podcasts or YouTube videos. There was none of that. And eventually, like it never even crossed my mind, but I, I noticed a lot of the local people had radios yeah. and I was like, huh. And so I went to the market and I bought this radio and I was also fascinated by it because I hadn't seen a radio in ages, <laughs> but there was something very like beautiful about it. It yeah. was like very nostalgic. It was all, you know, hand adjusted. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. digital. It was all dials and buttons. And, uh, and I took it back and there was something that brought me a lot of joy. It was just listening to that radio. Yeah. You know, and again, there was like three channels, <laughs> uh, but I found a great, a great peace and a great joy just like laying in my hammock and mm-hmm. listening to the radio. Even in the beginning, I could barely understand what they were saying, you know. It's, mm-hmm. um, but that simplicity, there's, there's something really beautiful about that. And, and that tension, you know, I think is really important, like that struggle. And, yeah. and maybe like what you were saying, like that's, 
if life becomes too easy, and I know that's hard for a lot of people to hear because they look at their own life and they're like, well, it's not easy. Right. But again, things are relative too. It's like, well, yeah, maybe it's not easy because also I, I have all of these expectations. Like Mm -hmm. I want this and this and this and this and this and this. And if I don't have that, it seems like my life isn't easy. Um, but how many people truly are content having a bed? Like how many people are really grateful to have a roof? Mm -hmm. How many people are really grateful to have clean water? Yeah. And is that enough? Um, what was that like that, that transition when you, you came down and you were doing, as you said, a lot of this digging, these ceremonies, and then eventually stepping into this role of, of working with other people, of facilitating and kind of shifting it more from that internal journey towards, it's maybe kind of an overused term, but like holding space or or guiding other people. Um, I mean, the, the transition was pretty smooth for the most part. Um, I, I was trained on door which um, is, I, I know you've had Felix on. Um, so <clears throat> uh, Felix was actually assisting in ceremonies when I started um, into that space. And so, yeah, I'd say the first year it was me just kind of um, observing uh, the various facilitators um, you know, in this space during ceremonies, like how they would interact with guests um, and as well as outside of the space. And, you know, every every facilitator um, is unique and different. And so it was, it was a really beautiful um, training period. Like I, I just tried to be a sponge and absorb as much as I could, like see how different facilitators would handle you know, situations, um, or interactions with guests. Um, and then, you know, from the medicine st- side of things, like understanding <clears throat> how the medicine changes, um, when I'm drinking, when I was drinking for myself and going into my own process versus, you know, taking a working dose and feeling the space and what was happening in that space, which that that was like another layer of um oh wow <laughs> like okay this is actually happening and i had no clue when i was you know a pasajero um sitting in the circle to actually be on the outside of the circle but watching and being tuned in um and feeling the energies which again it, it's really hard to explain what that's like but you know um you know, to, to feel the room, um, collectively. And then, uh, so that was my first year was just kind of learning, you know, observing facilitators interact with guests. Um, and then for me with the medicine, understanding what it was like to work with the medicine, not to go into my process, but to, to be in that space, being completely open, I'm sorry, uh, to be completely open um, and to feel what was happening in in that environment. Um, And so that was about a year 
of training. And then um, after that, uh, some of the facilitators that had been there for a while, um, you know, were ready to move on. And so some, you know, a, a slot came open and um, I was, uh, yeah, I was asked if I wanted to facilitate it. I was like, yeah, I've, I've kind of been waiting for this. And, um, you know, I, th- I think with anything new, there's always that um, concern of not screwing things up <laughs> too badly and uh, not, you know, there was, um, it's, it's that learning curve of finding, of finding my own style, you know, of what felt right for me, you know. Um, I observed a lot of facilitators um, and was, you know, able to pick up on quite a few ways to engage with guests um, that I, I felt were, um, that felt right. But then not necessarily, you know, stepping into it so that it, it was me doing it. It wasn't me, like, recreating, right, or mimicking um, someone else. Um, so, honestly, a lot of it was me just, like, being silent and sitting there, you know. And this goes back to when I was um, working in Korea, like, a lot of the times when I was in Korea, it was like, I didn't know what to say <laughs> to some of the things that were shared with me. And it's just like, okay, wow, that's a lot. Um, and so I think by default or through that experience, by the time I started to work with guests as a facilitator, um, I just kind of, I had that aspect of just, there's no need for me to probe. Like, that's not my job to to dig into somebody. Like, they'll share what they want, what they feel comfortable and are ready to share. And, um, it was, you know, I think more of the questions that I had for other facilitators was, were, were actually around specific instances in the ceremony space when, you know, someone was really struggling or like, how much should I engage with them? Like, how much should I talk to them? You know? And, you know, I, I got some really good, um, feedback from, uh, you know, the facilitators that I'd uh, observed, you know, um, but a lot of it was, again, like having to go through it for myself and kind of figuring out like, yeah, okay, like, I probably indulged that person a bit too much, you know, because they, they wanted an audience, they wanted, and, you know, part of that goes back into, you know, on some level, them wanting to just be seen and heard. But there's a line in like allowing that space, but then when does it become an indulgence and maybe not helpful because that's how they've always gotten attention. Um, so again, kind of like this delicate dance of engaging and then knowing when to step back and um, allow that person to to figure things out for themselves. Um, and then, yeah. Uh, I always, you know, this was really big for me uh, when I first started was like just asking permission, you know, like asking permission to engage with that person. Um, And this happened more in a processing setting um, outside of the ceremony. So like day after ceremony, if someone was really challenged and you could kind of see it, you know, uh, facially or their body language was, they looked just, you know, devastated or something, you know, like coming up to them like, hey, 
are you okay if, you know, I sit with you, right? Or can I ask how you're doing? You know, that, that was a really big piece for me was just make sure I'm always asking permission so I'm not, again, forcing um, and giving them the choice to accept or decline. And that, that was, um, that has been a really big piece for me. And like when I'm working with a guest is to recognize that there's, that there are boundaries, but then also, you know, anytime you're, I'm working with someone to make sure that they have that choice, that they can decline it, you know, and not, not to take it personally, um, if they, if they choose to decline it. Um, so yeah, that, that transition was relatively smooth. Um, and yeah, I mean, you, you kind of know the tempo of retreats at the temple. Um, and I, I was, yeah, I'd say the first six months, which in retrospect probably felt like two years <laughs> compressed, um, you know, that I, where I was facilitating, like that was, that was the really big learning curve, you know, and just, yeah, understanding group dynamics in a, um, in a container that a lot of stuff opens up, you know, um, and understanding where my center is, you know, trying to figure out, like, not getting caught up in someone's narrative or someone's story or, you know, taking on too much. And that, I feel, was probably the biggest challenge. Um, and I, I feel it's also pretty common for people that are in this work to... Um, to it's a trapping in a sense, but it's not necessarily negative. It comes from a good place, but it's also not ideal and it can be very detrimental to the actual facilitator because, you know, this level of care that you, that we provide, um, whether that's holding space or just, you know, being present for someone, um, is very energetically draining and, there's almost this tendency of like putting someone else's needs above ours. Um, and I saw that with, you know, a handful of other facilitators. Um, and it was, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow because it's like, no, I want to help. Right. But at the same time, like how good are you to help somebody if you're totally, you know, wasted and don't have the energy level to really be focused and present. Um, when someone is sharing something very, you know, uh, intimate or very, uh, painful for them, you know, and you're, you don't have the energy to be focused. So, you know, finding that line, um, that, that took, um, a longer period of time to kind of like figure that out. <laughs> and it was pointed out to me several times, <laughs> like you, you need to kind of just take some time for yourself. Like you don't have to be here every second, you know, of every moment during a retreat. So, how would you describe that role of facilitation? And and also, it's interesting because I, I did an interview earlier today where the topic was um, like, w 
what does it take to be a facilitator? Because I think that's something that there's also, again, with the expansion of this work, that's it's something that's becoming more prevalent. Like, mm-hmm. what is what does that mean to facilitate a ceremony? Uh, mm-hmm. Who is that person? What is that role? And what does that really entail? And and what are like what are skills that you found that that make someone good at that job? First and foremost, I would say humility. Like, um, understanding that you, you know, that role is to be of service. It's not to be, you know, this a superstar or, you know, uh, be the go-to person. Um, you know, it's about, for me, um, you know, being humble because it, it, the opportunity that, I, you know, I'd say the facilitators that worked at the temple um, and, you know, even at Soltara, um, you know, it, it's a very unique role. And if anything, it's, it's a gift to be able to step into that because one, you get to meet an amazing number of people. I mean, just this, the broad spectrum of people that come through and the personalities and um, to engage with them, you know, in, in a time and space that uh, they're choosing to, to actually open, you know, um, in some very raw ways. Um, it's an incredible gift. So having humility around that, like, I'm, I'm fortunate. I am very, very fortunate to... Uh, to be in this role and, uh, you know, having gratitude for that. Um, as far as skill sets go, um, being like an active listener, like not just listening to someone because they're talking and, you know, you're, you know, lunch is in two hours and I'm really hungry, but like, being so present that, you know, a torrential rainstorm could be happening, you know, and it doesn't phase you because you're so locked in on that person. Like you're giving them your undivided attention, um, which is hard, you know, because there are times where like thoughts are going to come through, like, did I do this? You know, but like, if you can, I found I was at my best when I could quiet that and just be locked in on that person and just, you know, on a subconscious level or somehow it was communicated, like, you have all the time in the world. Like, I don't have to be anywhere. Like, whatever you need to share, whatever you feel like sharing, I'll hold that space for you without any judgment, you know without trying to solve or, you know, figure out, you know, what, what your problem is. Like, I will just let you be you for this moment in time. And that could last five minutes. That could last hours, you know? Um, and this goes back into like (laughs) that fine line and like recognizing like, okay, there is a time where, you know, um, if it starts to repeat, you know, the person starts to repeat themselves or it gets out of that that space where it's um, authentic and more of a show, then, you know, I need to set that boundary and like, 
kind of close that space down. But um, can you speak about why that's important? Um, I, it's important because you know if someone is let's say caught up in a narrative or is um, you know they're going into this narrative and the more that they actually feed it it actually can be detrimental because they're they're not working their way out of the narrative or um, the story that's been created they're just recycling it and repeating it and reinforcing it and it's kind of like just running on a treadmill like you're not going anywhere um, and it maybe feels good for that individual because it reaffirms certain false beliefs or a narrative. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it doesn't really help them to progress. So, you know, um, kind of just either disengaging like, or bringing them back to the actual point um, that they first raised in reflection, um, using their own words back to them actually can help break that. Um, in another sense, um, you know, if that's how they've gotten attention, right? Um, again, that it, it's a very common thing that I've seen with guests is they'll act out or they'll retell a certain story or, you know, a trauma. And it doesn't invalidate the trauma that actually happened, but they're not, fo- they're not putting the time and energy into healing, you know, what that moment in time, that trauma um, impacted them and the results of that, but they're focused on this victim mentality. And because they keep looping back into that, um, that's how they get attention. That's how they get validated that, you know, in, in a way to gain sympathy. And that, that's actually disempowering for people is, you know, to have someone hear you and, you know, have this sense of compassion versus, you know, oh, you know, this kind of almost um, this societal thing that seems to happen, which is where you hear people who, you know, I, I think of like, you know, Oprah Winfrey or like Maury Povich, you know, these talk shows where you have someone who's like pouring their heart out and you, you get a shot of the audience and they're like, Oh, you know, like that's so sad. It's, it's this false sense of sympathy, but the person gets attention from that and a sense of validation. And it's actually, it's a disservice to them. Um, if I engage with in that manner and that's not what I want, um, you know, for them is to be inauthentic. And so if I feel like, they're trying to pull on these heartstrings because that it reinforces their sense of like, you know, these shitty things happen to me and like how, you know, the world's so cruel and it's like, okay, okay, you can continue believing that, but does that actually help you move forward in life? Because if you're going to constantly look through that lens that the world owes you something because of these past experiences and you're not doing anything to correct, you know, some of these protection patterns that are keeping you in that victim state, I I, I can't have sympathy for you. Um, And it doesn't mean that I don't care, but I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to be party to that little game that's going on, 
if that makes sense. And I hope that doesn't sound cold. But um, yeah, that's that's part of the reason, or those are the reasons um, that it's not beneficial as a facilitator to engage with those type of um, interactions. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because the moment that a facilitator or that I've in that role have chosen to not engage with that, it causes that other, it causes the person to actually shift because it's what they've done and is familiar with them in the past. That's worked so well to gain sympathy, to gain reinforcement of this victim mentality or this belief of, you know, the world is shit and that they're owed, um, you know, so much because of their past traumas the moment that I don't engage with that, they need to change tactics, which is really interesting. And in, in plenty of instances that I've, where I've had guests that are trying to pull me into this narrative and I'm not engaging with it, usually there's some anger <laughs> that comes up right away. But then, again, if I just give them the space, like, okay, you're angry. Can we acknowledge that? Yes. Okay, why? What's, the, what's connected to that anger? Well, it feels like you don't care about me. It's like, okay, do you believe that? No. Okay, let's go a little bit deeper, you know? And, and again, just kind of like allowing them to start processing. Like I had one guest um, that I was, I was doing it in a, a gentle way, but I was kind of poking holes in her story. And she actually stopped and she's like, it's really fascinating. Like, I'm getting angry at you. And I was like, okay, why is that? And she's like, well, I'm angry because, like, I know you're trying to help me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, so what do you want to do? You know, like, I don't know. I think I need to sit with this. <laughs> it's like, okay. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, f- to facilitate... Um, it really does require a lot of not just your own personal self-awareness, which is why I think having, you know, um, why the temple had like, you know, a hundred ceremonies. It's, you start to understand your own triggers, your own, um, own patterns. Um, but you've also seen kind of a, a good spectrum of what ceremonies can present. And so when you're working with guests, you know, the more self-aware, or I don't want to say necessarily self-aware, the more a person has gone into themselves, the less likelihood there is of them projecting onto the guest their hopes or desires or um, being susceptible to being sucked into um, that guest's you know, hopes and desires or stories or whatever. Um, so you can just be almost like a blank canvas for them to bounce things off of. And you're, you're not in, engaging on an emotional level into the story, but you're engaging into the emotional spirit that they have. So you, can, you have empathy for that pain, for the anger, for the frustration. You know, you can meet them with unconditional love um 
And, you know, that's, it, it takes time. I, I remember Matthew telling me when I first got to the temple, um, it takes about three to four years to train, you know, a really solid facilitator. And yeah, it took me, I'd say about three to four years to feel like I, I was competent, you know, with, within that role. Um, just because of so many different guest experiences that came through and just, there were some guests that really triggered me. And, um, you know, I knew like, I, I'm not the right person to facilitate this person. And that, that's a really big, uh, can be a big ego hit, you know? Um, so I remember the first time I actually, uh, went to my co-facilitator and I was like, you need to work with this person. Like I, and it, was, it wasn't coming from a place of, like, I don't want to deal with this person. It was coming from a place of, like, I'm not the right person. As much as I, I would like to help this person, it's just not, I'm not the right person. They're not going to listen to me or whatever it is. Like, that's not me. And that, that, was, that was brutal for me to, to actually have to express to my my coworker at the time, like, um, so again, knowing you're not the right person for every single person out there, you know, um, which is why it's, I would say a center that has, or any place, um, you know, ideally you want at least two facilitators and hopefully it's, you know, a male and a female, um, just to have a bit of balance, um, between the genders. But can, can you speak about that? Because a <laughs> without trying to offend people I think we live in an interesting time where in some sense we don't want to recognize mm. the inherent power or difference or uniqueness mm. that a man and a woman can bring that, right. that they're, they're just so why, why do you feel that's important like what, what would be issues or, or things like, because I think what you said was really important, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and I think that's really a sign of humility, too, is where we realize, like, hey, like, I think if I engage with this person, it's not going to be the best for that person. Right. Um, maybe also for you, it won't be, but yeah. at least try, because I think we owe it to that person. Right. Like, you know, can you try? Because I think maybe you can do a better job right. than I can. Um but why, because in that situation, it could be two men or it could be two women. Right. Like, what do you think is that, that importance? Because I completely agree with you. I think there is a real power in having a man and a woman. I mean, energetically, there, there's a difference. Um, and, you know, every, everyone's different. And this, this gets really interesting because uh, I faced this more while I was working at the second center, um, you know, we're, we're coming into, we're at a very interesting time um, in the human experiment, experience, around gender roles. And so, um, you know, it was the first time that I really, on a f high frequency, fre frequency um, level, within retreats, um, had to be mindful of my pronoun use. Um, so we had guests that were coming in that, you know, preferred to be, you know, use the pronoun they. Um, and uh, some who were very abhorred, you know, using uh, he or she. So th that was interesting. And, yeah, 
I understand it, and I definitely honored it when they would bring it up. Um, so, you know, let me back up a bit. The importance that I feel with having a male and a female facilitator, um, and ideally a male and a female curandero, um, in that space is energetically there's there's a balance there. Um, I've worked with other males um, where it's just been to you know this other male and myself facilitating, and I can feel it. I can feel it in the space. It's it's a little bit more masculine, and I'd like to think that I'm pretty in touch with my my feminine um, side. But at the end of the day, I I'm a I'm a male. Um, and there's a certain vibration and frequency um, that is inherent. And, you know, from a guest experience standpoint, there definitely are moments where there are some males who are going to be more comfortable and going to feel more safe um, or will feel safer in speaking about certain things with a male facilitator, just as there are female females that will feel a lot more comfortable speaking about certain things in their experience with another female facilitator. With that being said, there's also a crossover. There are some things that a male will only want to share with a female facilitator, and a female will female guests will only feel comfortable sharing with a male facilitator. So having that option, you know, it really comes back into providing this goes into the container providing the choice for the guest to choose. Who do they feel comfortable with? Who do they want to engage with? Who do they want to share what they want to share with? You know, And that could be a male in one instance. It could be a female in another. Um, and you know, I feel it's important to, to provide that for, for guests, um, regardless of how a facilitator or a guest, you know, self-identifies gender-wise, but to, to have that um, choice. And, you know, they might not choose at all to engage with either facilitator, but, um, you know, there, I think it also comes into this thing of a shared experience. There are certain things that being a male and growing up as a male that I, I can understand, but I can't empathize and I can't yeah, I can't empathize with from a female experience. Like, it's just, I don't, I won't have that base of knowledge or experience, experiential uh, reference point. So, yeah, that's why I feel it's important to have, um, you know, a male and a female facilitator uh, within the space. Um, I think it also, and this goes back into... I've never had to experience this, obviously, but based on the horror stories that I've heard where there's been um, some inappropriate physical contact, typically between um, a male curandero, it's usually with a female um, patient or guest, and oftentimes it's because there, there hasn't been, you know, a female curandera, um, in that space. It's not obviously in every single case, but um, I, I feel it also mitigates that potential of impropriety um, or inappropriate contact happening um, 
within the ceremony space and then also outside of the ceremony space, um, having a male and a female. I mean, I, I think you just kind of are going to be more aware and more present with how you engage or at least how I engage with other guests. Um, so yeah, especially of the opposite sex. All of the gender studies people just unsubscribe to the podcast. That, I, I, I hope I didn't offend anybody. Um, I no, mean, no, I'm, I'm joking yeah. with you. I think these things are super important yeah. to talk about, and um, it's you know it's a, it, it's a big topic these days, and and you know, and I think part of that is also, as you were saying, is, is honoring the traditions we're working yeah. in, and, and certainly. For all of these people I've worked with, like yeah. there, there are different gender roles and, yes. and they're seen as having different powers. And, <clears throat> you know, that's even something that, that I may have questioned before I did this work, but it, yeah. it's something I, I can't, I can't not question it anymore, but I, I for sure see it from a different angle. Right. It, just from a vast amount of experience, the, the, the inherent energies that men and women, as you yeah. said, carry are different. Now that that's, it's not black and white and, no. you know, every, no. every individual is different and they, they carry different energies. But, um, even in the work I do with, uh, like my, my friend and colleague Marav, like it's, it's very apparent, uh, these, these different polarities that we embody, how people react to that is very different. The, the, what they take from that is very different. And it's, uh, it's one of the main reasons I chose to, to work with her too, was, yeah. you know, there, there's this, I think, very beautiful balance to that. And, um, what are this is great can you think of any other like uh qualities or tools that that are really beneficial for a facilitator uh patience lots and lots of patience um i think that's what i think i had asked leela that question like what, what does it take to be a good cordondero and her first answer yeah. was uh, patience <laughs> yeah that's uh yeah if you're not familiar with patience you will become very familiar with it as a facilitator because Again, you know, I think this goes back to the ego piece. Uh, however, a process unfolds for any given guest is rarely ever going to coincide with the timetable that you'd like it to be on. Um, and that's great, you know. Um, again, coming back into it's really not about the facilitator. Um, I, I personally believe anyone with their mind and their heart in the right place can step into this role. You know, it's not, um, it requires dedication, it requires commitment, but, you know, like most things in life, if you want to become good at it, that's what it requires is um, that perseverance, that dedication, that that willingness to return when it, you know, it's not fun and it's not, um, you know, you kind of rub off that initial illusion you know, that sheen of what it, you think it's going to be. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of selfless work. Um, and where I, I've seen people get tripped up that are wanting to step into that is oftentimes because they're still stuck in this ego piece. Like it's, it's about me, it's about me, like, or, you know, they want to be, have some notoriety or a name to it. And, you know, this, I think also ties into the healers that I admire and I respect, um, <clears throat> that are, that are Shipibo, you know, and it's, they, it's not about them. It's about the medicine. 
like they're the conduit for the medicine and the vehicle for the medicine to work through. And they're highly skilled at what they do, but they definitely don't want to kind of pick up that mantle of like they're amazing and they're the best thing since sliced bread. Like there's humility, you know, um, there's humility without the self-deprecation. You know, it's, it's that, um, it's confidence in their skill level and who they are as a healer, but they don't take it to this next level of that, you know, fall into that, what Western medicine calls the God complex, you know, that surgeons sometimes fall into. Um, so the healers that I respect, um, you know, when I've, I've tested them, <laughs> you know, at different points, um, like asking them about the medicine, like where they see their place in it. And it's like in service to the plants in service to the plants. I am, I'm a tool or I'm a vehicle for the plants, you know, and the, that level of humility has always impressed me. And it, the facilitators that I respect and admire and that I, I feel I've learned probably the most from is they, they approach it that way. It's like, it's, I'm, I'm here to be of service, you know, and I don't have answers and I don't want to have the answers for anybody. And it's really not about me at the end of the day. Um, and it's nice to get compliments, but it's also kind of uncomfortable and a little bit unwarranted, <laughs> um, you know, but, um, yeah, uh, skill wise patience, um, a good sense of humor, a really good sense of humor, being able to laugh at yourself, being able to laugh at certain situations, um, will carry you quite far in this work. Uh, I remember this one time I was, uh, in, in the Maloka, in Maloka one, and, um, it was a crazy night. Like it was just explosive. Like there was stuff happening all around the space. And I remember walking and my foot went into a purge bucket. And the first thought that came into my head was like, that's gross. <laughs> it's just like, but it was so funny. Like I, I was cracking myself up just because it's like, yeah, <laughs> that's pretty gnarly. Um, but yeah, I, I, I found it to be just hilarious that, you know, in all of this craziness, I step into a purge bucket and, you know, it's the only time that it's happened. Um, but it was like funny for some reason. Um, so yeah, um, I'd say the, off the top of my head, those, those are kind of patience, sense of humor, humility, um, gratitude, uh, really being a good active listener. Um, yeah, that's what I, I can, I'm sure I'll think of more later on. You mentioned these two words, which I found fascinating because, um, I've often said this, but for me in that ceremonial space, when there's often two words that when people share those, I, I have a very deep felt sense that that person is connected to the medicine mm -hmm. and that's gratitude and humility. Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned this idea of kind of like an ego inflation and, um, it's, it's something uh, that, 
that I think is becoming maybe more of an issue. I mean, certainly here in the Sacred Valley, you can see it, um, but just in, in the world yeah. is, I mean, especially with things like social media and, and even these these reward systems, these dopamine spikes of likes and yeah. shares. And um, so, it, I, I mean, I think to some degree, it's only natural that that would also transfer to, to this world as well. Yeah. But do you, do you have a sense of, of where it can be very beneficial or or even essential to work within a certain lineage or a certain system that kind of has a checks a check and balance for that where if if the ego does start getting yeah. inflated there's someone there to kind of help to bring you down yeah. almost as you said like when you're facilitating someone it's because if we let that just start to run wild it starts to gain steam right. and and it becomes more and more of a problem rather than if it's cut at the root in the beginning it's seen and it's recognized it's much easier to work with well i mean i think that there's another component to that which is not just within the lineage but like does the individual have a teacher or teachers you know that will that will act as that that check um, and balance to that process, you know. Um, again, I'm just speculating based off of the some of the stories that I've heard of uh, people that are running, you know, predominantly circles in the you know up north. Um, you know, they, they haven't trained in a lineage. They've maybe had a couple ceremonies or they've, you know, maybe they've had a one or two plant dietas, but you know, they've never been given permission by, you know, a maestro or a maestro to serve medicine. Um, or, you know, they, yeah, they take on very early, like they're meant to, um, to do, to be a curandero, which again, you know, in fairness, that that very well may be the the truth, but you know, the time that's spent studying, you know, and going through the the system uh, completely, uh, you know, is a long process. I've met very few Westerners, um, and this includes my time, you know, at the temple, that have gone through a full apprenticeship, and you know, that's that says a lot. Um, I've met one person, um, who I won't name, who supposedly went through a full apprenticeship. He's quite well known. And, um, I was in a ceremony with him and, um, yeah, he, he started to sing, but it was not, if he was trained within the Shipibo system, it was not an Ikra that like I'd ever heard or was even familiar with. Like there were no commands as far as the words, right? It, it was something so different that I was uncomfortable in that space, that this person was working on someone. Um, and this is a Westerner. Um, and I, I just, I was like, I'm not comfortable in this space. I'm, I'm leaving, you know? Um, just because energetically I, I didn't recognize what he was doing. Um, and yeah, supposedly he worked or he trained within the Shipibo system. I've never met his, um, his maestro, but, um, I mean, again, for me at the end of the day, and I hold this true to this very, uh, you know, moment in my life, 
working within the medicine space, at the end of the day, the only thing that I have is my reputation. The only thing I have is my reputation. And all it takes is one step over a line of impropriety, of not being in integrity, and I lose it. And to rebuild that within this space is hard, if not impossible. And there are plenty of healers that, you know, I know I will never sit with because of things I've seen them either do in the ceremony space or things that they've done outside of the ceremony space. Um, Just my trust isn't there. You know, it's not that they're bad people. I just don't want to work with them and I don't want to sit with them. Um, And in some cases, you know, it's been, it's sadness more than anything else. Not even anger. It's more sadness that like this person is so talented and yet they, I don't want to associate with them because of things that they have done. And, you know, it can seem kind of counterproductive or counterintuitive to, you know, what often comes up in the medicine space around forgiveness, right? And again, you know, I think there's a difference between when you have power within that space and how you choose to work with it versus a guest who's going through a process around forgiveness. So there's, it's kind of like you should know better kind of thing. Um, so with that being said, um, yeah, if anyone is wanting to step into the, to medicine work, whether that's as a facilitator, as a host, whether that's as someone who's wanting to start apprenticing and learning um, how to actually work on people, uh, you know, hold this as a very core part of your work is you are only as good as your reputation. And the moment that that gets tarnished. Um, yeah, it could be the end of your time within this space. Maybe it isn't, but, um, you know, to lose that is for me, um, kind of like going back to this death piece, like that, that would devastate me. You know, if I, hopefully (laughs) I, I never come to that point, but if that were to ever happen where I cross a boundary that I know is inappropriate, um, even if no one found out, I think I would have to take myself out of the, this type of situation or equation of working with medicine just cause yeah, I wouldn't be living with myself within integrity. So one of the questions that came up, um, in this interview was, again, as this work begins to expand and, and, and spread, you know, as you said with this guy who you didn't feel was qualified, mm-hmm. how do you see, I mean, do you see some sort of system or way that there is some sort of qualification where you can go to someone and whether it's a certificate or a training or, or something where you can say, like, this person is now skilled (laughs) or is it just something where it's also one of these fields where maybe there's not a way of doing that 
I, I trust its reputation at the end of the day. I do. Um, you know, but this, you know, it also places responsibility on the, on not just the, the practitioner or the facilitator, but on the people that choose to sit with, you know, certain healers or work with certain facilitators. It's like it behooves them to do their research, right? The guest or the patient to do their research on who are you actually sitting with? Who are you opening yourself up to? Because, you know, it's a small community, as you know, <laughs> um, you know, and you hear things um, through the grapevine. And, you know, I, I usually try and, you know, step away from the, the gossip or the, you know, the rumor mill. But when it's been verified by, you know, more than two people that have firsthand experience, you know, um, you know, I, I tend to trust that. Um, it's not an infallible system by any means. Uh, so, um, because also, for example, I mean, I, I, I often get emails or messages from people saying like, Hey Jason, do you know of this center? Right. And almost always the answer is no. Yeah. You know, and I do this work, but I, there, there's so many places like yeah. I, I have no idea. And so if I don't know about them, like, like how is that person also going to, to really, you know, if they're in right. Ohio or something and this place is in Pucallpa, right. like they don't know anyone who's been there. They're, they're, it's like a new world. It's right. foreign. Like maybe there's some testimonials on the website or something, but. Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Um, on on a personal level, I've I've just kind of gotten to this point where I don't recommend anything. <laughs> like, you know, I what I will often do is you know kind of put it back to the individual. Like, okay, so you found this place. Does it feel right for you? And if there's like some wavering, like uh, I'm, not, I'm not certain, like I don't, I don't know, versus like yes, that that to me, like when I when I was doing my research, um, you know, between the temple and some other centers, like after looking through them, and like it was just a solid yes for the temple, like without question, I was like, yep, this is the place, you know, and I had, you know. I'd done my research, but it wasn't like I'd gone super in depth on, you know, the whole history of the temple and all of the healers and, you know, <clears throat> but, um, that was, that was how I determined it. Um, I, again, I, and this, this can seem really, um, flippant, but I want to put the trust in individuals, you know, and this is, this comes back into to agency, you know, um, who am I to, to recommend any any one center? Like, I don't necessarily want to carry that burden. And at the same time, for an individual to to give that 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 power over to me, like again, it's not something I necessarily want either, because I want them to come back and say, "Well, you're the one who told me to go to this place and it sucked, right?" Or I had this horrible experience, um, or I had a wonderful experience and I went because of Scott, you know, and then it turns into this kind of, um, you know, telephone game of they tell someone else because I, you know, referred them or I told them to go to this place. Um, so again, 
agency needs to come from that individual. If, if they feel, if they've done their research and they feel like this place is the right place, who am I to say that it's not for them? Who am I to say that it is? Like, do, do they trust their own intuition? Do they trust themselves? Have they done the research? Have they looked into it? Um, you know, and there's, we have amazing technology these days. I mean, there are the healers that are highly questionable. I mean, they have a reputation online. You know, it's not too hard to find out who some of these healers are. Um, and then, yeah, just again, you know, testimonials can be helpful. Oftentimes you're only going to see positive testimonials, right? So probably always, <laughs> yeah, probably always, but, um, you know, it's, I'd say it, it's the trickiest part of wanting to come and work with the medicine is finding people that you trust. Um, so one of the things that I've shared with guests that when they've brought up to me like, hey, I'm, have you heard of this person I want to sit you know, in North America with um, this group or this, you know, this curandero? Um, you know, and what I will arm them with are just questions. Who's cooking the medicine? Where's the medicine coming from? Where is it being sourced? Um, you know, how many years has this person been actually holding ceremonies, like working on people? Have they trained in a system? Which system? Have they gone through the full apprenticeship? Who is their maestro? Who is their maestra if they had one? Um, you know, um, how many diets have they had? Like what kind of diets? Um, th- and this is more pertaining to, I'd say, the Shipibo or Mestizo traditions, but, you know, there are Colombian and Brazilian traditions that work with the medicine differently. So, again, these are usually armed with, these These questions are more specific for people who are wanting to sit with someone who's either been trained or is saying that they've been trained by uh, the Shipibo or our Shipibo healers. So, um, yeah. But, you know, again, like, Asking questions, you know, all of these questions, they should, they should never raise, um, in my opinion, um, from the person who, who's being asked to answer them, um, hostility. Like if the person is legit and they're working with integrity, th- they should actually be happy that these questions are being asked because this person is actually, you know, wanting to make sure that this person has gone through knows what they're doing, you know, and is working with the medicine in a, in a manner that is, um, not just authentic, but, um, with, you know, with integrity, you know, it seems like, a, especially in, in, in North America and in the U S and Canada, the direction this work is moving is is towards this uh, psychedelic assisted therapy yeah. uh, where people are using synthesized versions yep. of plants or, or chemicals it's in a clinical setting there is like regulation where you mm-hmm. need two therapists one has to be like a registered psychologist or psychotherapist mm-hmm. um do you think there's 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 benefit in that and and do you think there's also potentially something lacking from these more traditional ways of of working with plants yes (laughs) (laughs) um i I actually know a therapist that is um within this this field 
um, and is doing um, therapies with um, uh, ketamine. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because he comes down and he, he works with the medicine. Um, so he, he's kind of got a, he has a foot in both camps. He sees the benefits of both. I'd say where the psycho-assisted therapies, it's a lower threshold for an entry point for Westerners because it does come with kind of that stamp of Western medical approval, like in a certain sense that it's clinical, you know, that you can, you know, give a specific dose of whether that's MDMA or ketamine, um, or, you know, in some cases, um, I think psilocybin, like they're, um, they have extracts, but, um, you know, for maybe it's too big of a jump, you know, for someone to, to make, to go into, um, whether it's the jungle or to another, um, <clears throat> medicine center, um, ayahuasca center to work with this medicine right out of the gate. And that's maybe the first step for them. So I, I feel it has a place to answer the second part of your question. Is it lacking something from, you know, these indigenous, um, cultures, I feel like it, there is the potential absolutely that it is, you know, um, because what are, I, I think you said this once, which I really held on to, um, and I've actually used a few times with guys, um, but, uh, we were at the temple. commission. There was this, uh, we were at the temple and we were talking and you brought up this really beautiful point around, um, you know, what is what is an altered state of consciousness? You know what it, what is that? You know, you drink a cup of coffee, you enter into an altered state of consciousness. It's not extreme in the sense of you know going on a psychedelic, but you are changing biochemically. You know your your level of awareness, right? It becomes heightened. Um, you know, we do this on a daily basis, but we don't think anything of it. So, what does that actually mean? And when you start to step into psychedelics, um, <clears throat> where that, that altered state of consciousness can be quite vast and, um, expansive, uh, it's not uncommon that there's this, you know, a spiritual side can come in, you know, and is that being addressed? You know, how do you address that? Um, Western medicine, you know, the, the trope goes that it focuses on addressing the symptom, not the root, you know, and, um, traditional medicines, plant medicines, especially, um, within the Shipibo tradition, um, you know, they, they tend to go for the root, you know, um, a boga, you know, tends to go (laughs) to the root. Um, and it doesn't really deal with the, you know, the effects, um, or the, um, the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the symptoms. So I would say, yeah, I don't know. I've never worked with, um, any therapists, you know, in that type of a setting. So I don't know how do they address, um, some of these things that come up around spirituality, around, um, this deeper sense of self, you know? Um, 
I, I don't know what that process looks like, but yeah, um, there, there is, I'd say a potential risk. Um, if that isn't combined into the overall therapy. And I think maybe that's the point I want to drive home is where this system with the Shapibo system, um, it's, it's holistic, you know, it's all encompassing. Um, and I, my concern with, and I could be totally off base here, but my concern with, um, you know, the current state of psycho-assisted therapy is, is it still too laser focused on maybe just one component rather than looking at the totality of the human being and the complexities that that entails, you know? So I I think that's also the beauty of these, um, indigenous, um, you know, medicines, you know, whether it's, uh, Aboga, whether it's uh, psilocybin, whether, well, not psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, uh, peyote, you know, huachuma. I mean, th- there tends to be this approach to looking at the human as a very complex you know, entity. And there's a physical level, there's an emotional level, there's a mental level, there's a spiritual level. And all of these components need to come back into alignment and in, into balance. It's not just focusing on one specific aspect. So, yeah. Well, beautiful, my friend. We're uh, <laughs> we're coming up on three hours. Um, <laughs> Hope I didn't bore your listeners <laughs> no, too. Much. No, that's great. <laughs> is there is there anything <clears throat> else you you'd like to talk about that we didn't address? Any um, anything that's on your mind that you'd like to share? Not not offhand. Um, just uh, you know, uh, grateful for you um, for yeah having met you at the temple and being able to what uh, actually this is a funny story um before time goes by if you're trying to count down when no 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 i actually (laughs) met you when i came in for my work exchange you remember that yeah felix i think it was with mihao Mihao, yeah you um i think you were in the middle or towards the end of your doing your tobacco dietas Mm -hmm. and yeah you came in a few times and I was just like, this is a cool dude. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, So yeah, however long ago that was to now, just yet super honored and Mm. blessed to have meet you and yeah, know you. So, Oh, well, likewise, Scott. Yeah. Thank thank you. you. Thank you for coming on and I appreciate your wisdom. Uh, I I know it's been a good podcast when we hit the three hour mark. So (laughs) hopefully I didn't bore any of your listeners too much or offend them. If uh, maybe you can just talk a minute or two about what you're up to and and kind of the work you're doing now. And if anyone's interested in contacting you or working with you, is there a way they can do that? Um, Yeah. So I'm currently uh, back in Sacred Valley. Um, I moved here in December of last year. And, um, yeah, have decided to kind of put roots down here for, um, the foreseeable future. And I'm working with, uh, Felix and Safa, um, over at Body of Prana. I, so, I interviewed them both. So okay, if fantastic. people want to check out those too. Yeah, please do. Please do. Um, these are, you know, going back to what we were talking about, like people who have Westerners who have gone through like a full apprenticeship within the Shapiro system, like, you know, Felix and Safa, um, have definitely done that. And, um, 
they're one of the few Westerners that I feel comfortable and totally open to sitting with. Um, you know, I trust them with my life. Um, but you know, they're medicine family. Um, I've known them from the temple and they've been, they've wanted me to come and work with them for quite a while now. And I feel like I just personally wasn't ready, um, to make that leap. And, uh, yeah, at the end of last year, I, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to, to make that commitment. And, um, so yeah, if you're interested, um, in the work that we do, um, you know, it's, it's very different. Typically we work more with, I'd say experienced, um, medicine drinkers. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that we, we exclude, uh, first time drinkers, but there, yeah, there's a bit of a difference, um, you know, sitting with Shipibo, uh, Curanderos and sitting with a Western, a Westerner who's been trained within that system. Um, and I, I get the sense and, um, general feeling that someone who's kind of sat with Shipibo healers and has reached a certain point within their medicine work, they can actually get quite a bit, not, not quite get quite a bit more that sounds comparative but um they they recognize that there is a benefit to having a western western um curandero or curandera uh singing to them and actually helping them in that process as they go a little bit deeper into the work um with that being said we all still um you know go back to our teachers um and diet with them so still wanting to honor and um, carry on that tradition. But, um, as far as contacts, uh, you can contact me through that website. Um, I really am not on social media. I'm I'm on Facebook, but I I rarely check it. But, uh, if you throw out a a friend request and say, I heard you on Jason's podcast, I'd be more than happy to friend you. And, uh, then, uh, we can, yeah, uh, maybe go from there as far as, uh, personal contact information, but yeah. Um, if you are interested or have questions around medicine work, uh, yeah, please feel free to reach out either through the body of Prana website, um, or find me on Facebook. So yeah. Great. And you guys offer specific dates for workshops or people can kind of come at will? No, we have specific dates. So, uh, we do, uh, plant dietas as well as, uh, retreats and, um, those dates, I believe most of this year is already filled up, but beginning of next year or into 2022, um, I think we're starting to open up, uh, dates. So those will be posted on the website. Yeah, 2022, man, time's going by. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's flying by. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. It, it's, it's been a pleasure, my friend. Oh, thank uh, you. I, I think you have a lot of wisdom to share, and I, I really appreciate it. And I'm, I'm really glad our, our, our paths cross. And it's always beautiful for me to, to sit down and to, to actually learn more about people. Because even though yeah. sometimes like we're <laughs> friends and acquaintances, there's these huge chunks of people's lives I, I don't know. So it's, uh, I find it, it's always something very endearing, and, and I learn a lot. And yeah. it, it always makes me respect people a lot more. So yeah. thank you, brother. It's been a real pleasure. Thank and you. I hope some people reach out. I, I know you guys do amazing work. Um, I've 
you know, to give a, a little bit of a plug, uh, I've, I've known now quite a few people who've worked with Shipibo and then they've come to, to work with, uh, you know, Body Prana, Felix Saf and yourself. And they, they've been incredibly happy. And as you said, they, they feel like they're actually gaining something that, that something different, yeah. uh, just a, a natural evolution, um, that, that I think, you know, all of these systems offer. It's, yeah. uh, kind of expanding our horizons and working with different people because they, they both offer different things too in, in their yeah. work and approach. So, um, and that's great. You're sold out. I'm, I'm yeah. super happy to hear that. So, yeah. well, you know, we try and keep a, a pretty balanced, we're not a, a retreat center in that larger scale sense. You know, we try and keep things, uh, intimate. So, we max out at seven people for uh, retreats and no more than five people for diets. So it's it's a very small container and very intimate. So mm-hmm. kind of uh, feel that's the where I want to be working more. Yeah. So. Beautiful brother. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you very much, it's Jason. It's been a pleasure, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode with my friend Scott. Um, I really enjoyed sitting down and talking to him. For me, it's always fascinating, even though uh, most of these people I'm friends with, uh, just sitting down in this long format conversation and getting to learn a little bit more about them. And I think he shared a lot, uh, a lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge. So I hope you all really enjoyed that. If you are able to support this podcast, if you feel like you're getting something from it, that's a really big help to me to be able to continue to make these Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service for as little as a dollar a month. You can subscribe. There's different tiers you can sign up for. um, And it gives you back some really nice things. And it's very much, in a way, working with this this Andean concept of Aini or reciprocity. Um, With Patreon, with the subscription uh, and the different tiers, you get things back like um, early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. And and that's a really big help, and it's a really big help to support this show. To all of the patrons, to all the people who have done that, thank you very much. I really appreciate all of the support. Uh, There's also the option of direct donating via PayPal. I'll put a link to both of those in the show notes. And if you're not able to do that, uh, simply going on the YouTube page, subscribing to the show, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, that's a really big help with the algorithms and getting this show out to a bigger and broader audience. And with the audio version going on Apple Podcasts, also subscribing to the show and leaving a starred rating and a short review, that's a very big help. So I think that's it. Uh, The next episode's coming up. Uh, I believe my friend Adam is coming on, who's an anthropologist. He also has worked in the jungle for a long time, working with plant medicines. So I'll be speaking with him. Um, And I have a few other guests lined up, but I'm not sure the exact order yet. So I'll wait before I say that. Um, But as always, there'll there'll be some really great people coming on. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you all for the support. And I will see you all on the next episode.
风。